Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast featuring New York sports talk and a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you this week. We are taking another dive into the last dance, talking more Chicago Bowl this week. I'm going to be joined in just a bit by Melissa Isaacson, who covered Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the early to mid-90s. Got some good stories with Melissa, Melissa there in that conversation. Looking forward to hearing you check that out in just a bit. We're also going to recap The Last Dance once again, episodes 7 and 8, two phenomenal hours of television there. I'm going to be joined by our golf guy, Dan Martini and Phil Lombardo. We've heard on this podcast before, talking some fantasy. We are going to break down the two hours we just witnessed, take a little look ahead to what's to come in the finale of The Last Dance. And Dan's going to stick around and do the pop culture hit this week. We are going to talk about the finale of Survivor Winners at War. Fun season came to an end this week. We have some stuff to discuss. Look ahead a little bit to the future of Survivor as well because season 41 is announced, but who knows when it's going to film due to the coronavirus pandemic. That's just good stuff as well. But we will get to all that in just a bit. First up, our opening tip. We're going to take some look at the NFL schedule. Some interesting nuggets, Jets, Giants stuff with my good buddy Nick Frietta right after this. All right, talk a little football here, the Just End the Suffering podcast. The NFL schedule has been released. Ordinarily, this is not something I do on the podcast, but it's fresh sports. Might as well cover all the fresh sports we get. And joining me today is a NFL schedule enthusiast and New York Giants fan. We has heard from him, I think, actually two weeks ago in the NFL draft recap. Nick Frietta is on the line with me today. Nick, how are you? Hey, Mike. Doing good. How are you? Doing pretty good, and I got to say, the NFL does come through again, and they do give us something to talk about sports-wise because of the schedule being out, and it's pretty nice. Yeah, that's great. Uh, A little disappointed that Thursday night, it was supposed to come out at 8 o'clock, and all the teams were posting on their Instagram earlier. I think it would have been a good idea. I know it was on TV, but to make it like a reveal, like like um, Selection Sunday, that would have been a great idea. I really missed opportunity, I think. I know they televised it, but it would have been cool if they didn't have anything leak at all and released it all at once. That would have been a nice. That would have been a nice watch. It would have been a nice watch, and I mean, by the time the schedule does come out, you you basically you had like half the Chiefs schedule. You know, the Jets were opening in Buffalo. You had a bunch of other stuff out there. So I agree with you. It's, I, this year would have been nice if they just, you know, were able to hold off on the uh, leaking. Yeah, especially, you know, all things considered, this would have been the perfect time for that. But they did release it. They did have a show. I didn't watch the show. And once I saw the Giants had posted their schedule, I was like, yeah, that's enough for me. We already knew who they were playing. just a matter of when. Yeah, indeed. So, and it was funny because coming leading into the schedule talk, there was a lot of rumors flying about, oh, the league's going to put all the AFC, NFC games in the first four weeks. They have to cancel them. We'll have the easy way to go down to 12 games. We have all these like things that the schedule can collapse and make it easier. But I have to say, I was a little surprised that the NFL did not feel have a ton of major contingencies built in there. 
I will too. I, you know, I heard the same thing you did about um, the AFC NFC being the first four weeks. I thought that was a great idea. Maybe it was too difficult to put in place. I'm not sure why they didn't, but um, I mean, they should have. I mean, you look at what's going on in the country and things are getting a lot better in our area, in the New York, New Jersey area, but in a lot of other places it's getting worse. Like overall, the country's in the same spot it was a few weeks ago. And I know New York and New Jersey have been a lot better. But overall, the country pretty much the same it was, which leads me to believe there is a potential that something might happen, especially, with, you know, we're in May now. Nothing's opened yet. Maybe they don't start training camp on time. They don't start training camp on time. Preseason might not start on time. And if everything's delayed a few weeks, you may have to get rid of some weeks in the season. Or who knows what they're going to do about fans. But when, we'll worry about that when the time comes. But I feel like maybe they should have had a couple more precautionary measures in there. Maybe, maybe it comes back to bite them. Hopefully not, though. Yeah, the NFL has been very much this whole time. They've been like, we're pushing ahead. We're optimistic. We feel good about our situation. If we can do things, we'll do them. Like, they did the free agency without, like, team visits and physical. They did the draft without the big pomp and circumstance. Everybody do it from home. Schedule comes out. But there are a couple of things I notice in there, which is, number one, like, every team has the same bye week as their week two opponent. So, like, if... The season has to get pushed back at all. You can get rid of the bye week and have everybody just play the week two game in their bye week in their bye week slot. So like the Jets and my, I think I forget who the Jets the Jets and Niners play week two. San Fran, yeah. You have San Fran. So like in week if that gets pushed back, they can get slot that game in week eleven. That's one scenario. The big one, the Super Bowl is flexible in dates. They can move it back, and they said they can go back about February twenty eighth. Right now, another surprise is more flexibility there. You can have this no division games weeks three and four. So I think those are the two most likely to go if they have to go to 14 games. And the other thing is, like, you might have something similar to what we have in 2001, which is, remember, like, when 9-11 attacks happened that we canceled the second week of the season, we pushed it back to the end of the regular season. And it would not shock me if something like that happens again. But they do have some flexibility here. I think that's good. They could have had more. Yeah, I think they did a good job hopefully enough um you know i don't know yet we really honestly we hear the governor talk every day in the last two months we hear the president speak all the time we don't really know yet we have to see what happens and you see you know there's a lot that we still don't know about this this whole situation is just only time will tell yeah because it's tough to tell because i mean there are some states like the 49ers who, who play in santa clara their, their county commissioner said i don't see any large-scale activities happening until Thanksgiving. So the 49ers got to play outside of their home home city for those games. Like, yet the NFL has said, okay, you're going to have these games here. And you have stadiums that aren't finished being built yet, and they may not have fans when they're open. So there's a lot of things. The NFL is fully just pressing on like nothing's happening, which I think is a bit of a miscalculation. I agree. I think, you know, when the NBA canceled everything, which was, March 11th, I believe. It was that Wednesday night. It was. Everyone thought they were crazy that day, myself included. I remember sitting in bed and I found out, you know, Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Everyone's like, what are they doing? They're taking this so seriously. And then all of a sudden, we're here two months later. And if you told me they were going to play an NBA game tomorrow, I'd be like, are you out of your mind? Like, I would need so much to happen between now and when I expect to see a sporting event happen. Yeah, 100%. But, there, I, the one thing I did like in this is that they felt like they did a good job of spreading out their some of their big games early this season. So, like, 
if they need to push back a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, like any of those weeks at the beginning of the season, feel like there's a big game there. I mean, feel like, wow, here's a big event for the start of football season. So I feel like they cover their bases that way in terms of the TV perspective. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, for example, like looking real quickly, well, first off, I think Dallas, the amount of games that Dallas is in this season that can serve as a big game. I mean, they have Seattle week three. They got, they have uh, Baltimore week 13. They have San Fran week 15. I know we're not going to start the season week 13, but I feel like Dallas has a lot of big games. Obviously, any game against the Eagles in Dallas is a big game. I just feel like that, they, I believe Dallas has the most primetime games of any team in the league as well. With uh, yeah, six, they have six primetime games. I just think Dallas has like a really like TV favorite, like a favorite, like a TV favorite schedule. Like people are going to tune into a lot of Dallas games this year. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right, though, that they can start this season week three. You know, we have week four. They have, we have a lot of big games as well. For example, week four, you have Pittsburgh and Tennessee. That doesn't sound like a big game originally, but remember how good Tennessee was last year? A lot of big games early on in the schedule. New England and Kansas City is also only four, so you can see that. Yeah, they, there's there is a lot of good stuff there. Let's go to the locals for a minute. You are the giant guy. Give me your take on the giant schedule. It is brutal, brutal. I don't think there's any way around it. I think they can easily go three and thirteen right now with how hard the schedule is. And I don't. And I don't think they're good. You know, I've, I've said that on this podcast before. I don't think they're three and thirteen bad, and the schedule might make them be three and thirteen bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, you get the nice thing for them is that, like, obviously, you don't have your Dallas in Dallas week one or two, which is nice because that's like it's been every year for about a decade. That yeah, stuff. I'm surprised. It's like a tradition at this point. Yeah, it is. But you I mean you get the Steelers to start the year on Monday night, which is rough, and the Steelers are going to be much better than they were last year. Look at some of these yeah. ga- games early. 49ers, Rams, Cowboys. You could easily be one and four, two and five, right? basically by the midpoint of the season. You're yeah, just, I mean, you're even going to Chicago is not an easy game. They, you know, they don't have a quarterback. They have a real bad quarterback situation, but going to Chicago is not an easy win. I don't. There's not. There's only like two games on the whole schedule that I look at and I say that's a win, and I'm confident that they can win the game. Honestly, really, the only one that I can really think of right now is home against Washington. I really can't see any other game that I'm positive that they're going to win. I mean, away in Washington, I think they're better than Washington. They should beat Washington, but I don't know if they're going to win on the road. Last year, they had then pulled it out of the last second to stop themselves from getting Chase Young in Washington. And then you have the away at the Bengals. I mean, the Bengals, they should be better than, but who knows? They're not that much better. Yeah, they're not. One I also want to point out, too, I'm circling on the calendar, December 20th, the Browns and Odell Beckham come into town. You know that the circus is going to be in town that day. Yeah, actually, fun fact is they they stay in New York and play the Jets again the following week. But, yeah, but that, 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 you know, that has no value, him playing the Jets. But him versus the Giants, it's going to be big. And I still regret – I still – I don't regret it. Make the trade, but I still think that was a horrible trade. Looking back, I think – Javon Peppers is wildly overrated. I think he's pretty good at best. And Odell Beckham is a superstar wide receiver. You know, he had a decent season last year. Nothing that hit standard, but he's a really, really, really good player, generational talent. And they traded him from starting safety in a first-round pick. I guess they did better than the DeAndre Hopkins trade, but I still don't like the trade. 
Yeah, I hear that. And let's go to the Jets for a minute. I mean, the Jets' schedule, the first three games on their schedule are just insanely hard for them. They, they go to Buffalo, who right now I think is the best team in the division. San Francisco flies east for a 1 o'clock game in week two, and then they have to go to Indianapolis week three. I think it's the favorite in that division. I mean, the Jets, they if they don't get at least one win in there, they're going to have a long year ahead of them. I think the Jets have a brutal schedule as well. I think New England's underrated. I know they, they got to figure out who's going to play quarterback, but they're, I think they're an underrated team. I think they're pretty good still. Buffalo, like you said, is a, is a quality team. They, they're the favorite in the division. And then looking at the divisions they play, the AFC West, Denver went 7-9 and nine last year. So did Oakland. Those are not bad teams at all. And yeah. both the Giants and the Jets play the NFC West, which I think is the best division of football now. With the you have the Niners, who are you know one of the best teams in the league, if not the best, probably right behind Kansas City. Seattle's a great team, and then you have Arizona's much better now. They're great, really good offense, and the Rams are on the way down, but they're still not bad. The Rams are still a decent team. I don't think the Rams are an easy win, especially. Giants have the Giants, the Giants and the Jets both have the Rams on the road this year. That's not an easy win. Like that's that's not a game that is so tough like it used to be. Like oh no, we're playing the Rams, but it's not an easy cakewalk anymore. Yeah, I think honestly the Jets schedule is really going to be those first six games. The three against the, we mentioned, and then the Broncos come flying east on a short week for Thursday for a Thursday night. Game. Yeah, what's good is what's good about the Jets schedule is they have. San Fran, Denver, and Arizona all coming to them. Yeah. on Yeah, and Denver's on a short week flying east, so that's one I think will be a huge advantage. Yeah. Them. Like, I think they could steal that because we saw what happened the, the year they played on Thursday and had to go out to Denver. They were gassed in that game. Yeah, and you see it time and time again. You forget about it a lot. When you look at the schedule, you say, like, you see them take a look at San Fran, and you say, San Fran's better than the Jets. They're much better than the Jets. That's a no-brainer. But it, how often does it happen that a West Coast team comes east and loses? happens all the time even last year at the 49ers how great they were they went to washington at one o'clock on a rainy day and struggled mightily and only won nine nothing it happens it happens all the time it used to happen with the seattle teams richard sherman they would come east and struggle yeah basically i think if the jets are not 500 through their first six games they're they're toast that's the, yeah, that's I mean, once, Buffalo, Kansas City, New England after that. Yep. Then you have a stretch of Oakland. The, yeah, the last twice. five games. That, that last five games is tough. Yeah, although I do think, I think from what I have read, that the Jets requested to stay out west for the Seattle-LA swing. So they're probably going to pull a page out of the Eagles playbook and the Patriot playbook and just stay out there and just not fly out back. There. Okay. Yep. Which I think is a Good. smart play. Yeah, right as well. And I go back to the Giants. I think an underrated thing that makes the Giants' schedule tougher or look tougher than it actually is, or actually be tougher, is the fact that they finished in third place last year puts them up against uh, Chicago and Tampa. Chicago, you know, they're a third-place team. I think that's fair. But Tampa has a third-place team. Getting Brady, they're not – like, those third-place teams are supposed to be games that, like, if you get better, you'd be like, we could be in another third-place team, like – Chicago, the Giants, might be able to win that game. I don't think it's an easy game, but they may be able to win that game. Then you look at the Tampa game, and oh, no, they have Tom Brady and Gronk, and they're the talk of the league now. They don't look like a third-place team anymore. And it's on Monday night, so there's actually embarrassing potential in that one. Yeah, it is a Monday nighter. Yeah, the Giants, you knew to get them at least one Monday night game just on name value alone, and they've, and I think, honestly, let's go to the prime time for a minute. 
I don't know about you. I feel like the Monday Night Pack is actually the best one this year. The Monday Night Package is pretty good. Yeah. Looking at it right now, actually, you have they got, a lot of good games in there. They got Chiefs-Ravens. I was stunned that they got Chiefs-Ravens. Yeah, and they have Seattle and Philly later in the year. They have, they have really good games in there. Bills 49ers. Patriots. Yeah, Bills-Pats later in the year as well. That's, that's, yeah, you're definitely right. It's a good package. Sunday night. Sunday. You, know, you don't have to really discuss Sunday night. Sunday night is always good games. But it's not as good as Monday night is this year. That's true. Yeah, it, it's true. It's not as good, but you can't really you can never look at Sunday night and say, oh, this game's going to suck. It's never going to happen. That's true. I mean, it, you know, and then Thursday, I'm a little impressed with. Yeah. A little, usually Thursday games, I can't stand. I feel like every Thursday game is, is, is like Tennessee versus Jacksonville, and it's boring, and it's like, who cares? The only reason you watch it because you might have Leonard Fournette on your fantasy team. It's just like it's such a boring game. But looking at the schedule for this year, I see week six is Kansas City and Buffalo. Yeah, that's solid. I see I see Dallas and Baltimore week 13. I see New England and L.A. Yeah. Those are some good games. I'm excited for that. Yeah, fun fact about the New England-L.A. game. That's one that they're – that's like they did the same thing the Jets did where they're out west. They decided to stay out there, and then they're playing them on Thursday out west, not flying back to New England. That's why it's logistically possible for them. Yeah, that's good. That's that's good. I mean, it almost seems to me like like that shouldn't be a thing a team has to request. I feel like the NFL should try to work that in as much as they can. I don't know if they do, but if they don't, they should. Well, from what I understand of the scheduling process is that the they take requests from the teams into account in terms of like scheduling road trips, or like it's like the Jets did this year with requesting the LA Seattle back to back, whereas. I remember back in 2008, the Jets had four different flights to the West Coast, which is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And then they ended up costing them down the stretch. That team got gassed. And the only thing you can say is at least it's not baseball. They don't have to go there overnight and play the next day. Yeah. But it's, it's still terrible that they have that and they didn't even allow that. Yeah, I did not get better than that. I feel like Sunday Night Football, the thing I want to mention about them real quick is like, yes, they have the flex, which is great, where you have a game that turns into a dog. So you can get it out, get it out and put something better in. But like, the thing that's surprising with that is that they were like, this is the NFL just being, we're showcasing our stadiums. We get the Rams on Sunday night twice. We get the Raiders on Sunday night, on Sunday night twice. And like those have games have dog potential them because both those teams have major boom bust potential. Yeah, that is true. I mean, the good news about the good news about those games is you have the other teams are good at least. So it's not like, I mean, which, which I guess makes it worse in terms of a blowout, but you, you have big name teams, I guess. Regardless of the Rams Stadium, it's a big name. They're in LA, you know. Regardless yeah. of the Raiders, they're in Vegas. That's going to be huge. And you know, I guess Tampa Bay is in the same situation where they may not may not be what we thought they are. Yeah. But we'll see about that. But I definitely like the Sunday games in general. And at least I always say when I want to watch a primetime game, I look forward to the game. I always say. Make the better team on the road. Yes, it makes it a little more interesting. And you know, I don't want to see, I don't want to see Kansas City versus the Raiders at Kansas City. It's just like what? At least you put it in Oakland, even if Oakland is bad, or excuse me, Vegas. Even if Vegas is bad at that point of the season, I mean, they probably flex it out. But let's say they didn't. At least you can say, well, they're home; they have a shot. Yes. Instead of just going into Kansas City and watching them get destroyed. I agree with that 10,000%. And I do think that, like, the Thursday games, I want to touch, uh, touch back on that for a second as well. I do think the interesting factor you have there is that, like, 
Fox does it. And Fox basically said to the NFL, it's okay. You can dip into our Sunday doubleheader game. It's like, we could take like a game or two off America's game of the week to boost Thursday night football, which is why you get the Packers 49er game there, which is great. And once again, the league does a great job scheduling the Thursday after Thanksgiving. You get Baltimore and Dallas on a, on a Thursday with the full week. So that's going to be an epic game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it really is. I, I'm excited to see what Baltimore can do this year. Yeah. I want to know if Lamar Jackson can repeat it. I mean, it's it. The season he had was unbelievable, and we've seen it before a lot with a lot of running quarterbacks. Where they have a season that changes the game, and then it seems like they come back in year two, and they're and they're not the same at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's fascinating to see how the league adapts to Lamar Jackson this year. The Ravens are a smart coaching staff; they'll be fun. The Ravens also on Thanksgiving this year. They're the nightcap with the. Ravens and the Ravens Steelers bloodbath. That's going to be a fun way to down your turkey and, and down, after you have your pie and all that stuff, you can, they'll probably put you to sleep with a physical brawl. You have Detroit, you have Detroit hosting the Houston Texans early, and then the Redskins Cowboys. That literally is just people will turn the TV on. I don't care what who they put the Cowboys up against. That's going to be an awful football game. Yeah, I'm not happy about there. I'm not happy about the early game here with Houston Detroit. I mean, that's not anyone's fault. Detroit has to play in that game. But... Yeah. They, they're, you know, they're they're a terrible defense. They're not a good team at all. I think Matt Patricia is on his last season as a coach there, and it, and then Washington obviously had bad day on second pick in the draft. But I think we had some bad Thanksgiving games, and the Detroit one you can't blame anyone. Detroit played on Thanksgiving; they're a bad team. What's going to happen? They got to keep playing. Yeah, but the Dallas Washington game would have been nice. You know, as far as I've been watching football, as long as I've been watching. I've never seen the Giants play Dallas on Thanksgiving. I didn't even know the last time it happened. And if it did happen recently, I don't remember it. I, think I remember the Giants played Denver on Thanksgiving one year, but I don't. How can they ever play Dallas on Thanksgiving? That would be cool to watch. And you think being in the division, you'd get to see that every now and then. Like, like sometimes you see the Vikings play um, uh, Detroit or the Bears or the Packers. It seems like it rotates between the three of them. I know this is Houston, but I've never seen the Giants stand out. Yeah, I'm look, I'm actually looking it up right now while I'm trying to find I'm that. assuming it's because they want to save that game for another time. That they would, don't need that game on that day, but I still would like to know when that is, when it was. Yeah, that would definitely be my assumption that they're saying, you know what, like we want the like we want the Giants Cowboys for a different window because it'll draw high rings anyway, so we can burn the Redskins right. here because they don't draw as well. But while I'm looking that up, I think my strategy, I think when I did my post a couple of weeks ago about the games that you should that I would put on Thanksgiving. I would have put the Packers in there against the Lions. I said, you know what? Like, it's been a minute since they've been on. It's Rodgers. Get him in there. Have some fun. I think they would be good. The other one I said for the Cowboys, I actually would have put the Cleveland Browns on there because they have not played on Thanksgiving since 89. You have a little star power with Odell and Manziel. Not Manziel and Baker, all that, guys. <laughs> I, and I think that would have been a lot of fun. I agree. I mean, Cleveland's had a little bit of disappointing season last year for what people were expecting, but I think they're, they're a pretty decent team. I mean, there would have been a lot of fun seeing the star power. That's what the Thanksgiving's about. It's not about, like, that night game is a good game. Let me run Baltimore and Pittsburgh. That's not the kind of game that, that Thanksgiving is about. I don't know. Thanksgiving's about star power, and that's it in my mind. You want to see Aaron Rodgers on the field, like you said. You want to see Odell Beckham on the field. You don't want to see a good game. Not, I mean, you do, but that's not what it's for. You want to see just star power, and that's it. You want to see the biggest stars in the game, because that's when you have, besides the Super Bowl, that's when you have people watching who generally don't watch football, and it's good to show them the stars, not 
Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. And I did look, look it up. The last time the Giants played on Thanksgiving in Dallas was 1992. So I think you were a mere one year old at that point. Yeah, I, let's see. Yeah, I was not even one. I was, I was nine months old at the time. Yeah, so you, yeah, so you and I clearly have no memory of that game. I was about two, yeah. three when that was happening, so I don't blame. I was you also there. a little late bloomer in a Giants fan. I wasn't a Giants fan until they played San Fran in the playoffs that year with with the big lead and Julian Peterson and all that. Yeah, and ironically, the Jets have played Dallas in Dallas on Thanksgiving more recently. They played there in two thousand and seven. That's the last time that they Dallas played a New York team on Thanksgiving. The butt fumble Thanksgiving night. Yes, it was. That's the last. That's the last time they've been on NBC too. Was the butt fumble game. Really? That was the last time they were on NBC. Wow. Yeah, they've been scheduled a couple times, been flexed out because they've been bad, but they have not been on in a long time. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, well, I think that's a good place to leave it here. It's been a lot of fun, Nick. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. Up next, I will be do- talking bowls with Melissa Isaacson, who covered the bowls back in the late 90s. But first, let's listen to one of the great moments from last week's of The Last Dance, the shrug courtesy of NBC Sports' Marv Albert. thrilled to be joined on the line today by another beat writer who covered the Chicago Bulls in Michael Jordan's heyday. Mostly that first dynasty, a little bit of the crazy that happened afterwards, the retirement and the comeback. Melissa Isaacson is on the line today. Melissa, welcome. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. And I have to say, it was definitely a lot of fun, like, watching this last dance. We, we sort of saw you pop up in the series in episodes five and six, so... What was your experience like participating in this documentary? Yeah, you know, uh, in Chicago, we had been hearing about this uh, kind of inklings of it for a couple years. And frankly, you know, I thought it would be cool, but I'm not sure I was as excited as everyone else at first, just thinking, you know, it'll be fun. And I was there and, you know, I'll know what's going on. And then clearly the momentum was building and I saw how incredibly thorough and thoughtful they were the filmmakers and putting it together and, and being interviewed myself. And as, as it got closer and closer, the anticipation was building so much. And then when they moved it up, um, I was just, you know, so excited like everyone else. And I've been glued to the set like everyone else as well. So I, I've really, really, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed the whole process. Yes. Yeah, as, as watching this or brought back some of the memories of your time covering the team and seeing like these stories being played out 25, 30 years later. Yeah, they really have. I've been joking to friends and family that I wish they would interview me now because now uh, it's all come rushing back to me and my memories are much more vivid. And when they interviewed me a year ago, April, I remember really being uncharacteristically like very nervous because I I felt like I couldn't remember very much. And so I felt like I was a little um, sort of hesitant in, in those interviews. 
because it was tough, you know, I mean, it was a long time ago and there were some details they were asking me and I just, you know, it just wasn't all coming back to me like I'd hoped it would. And then, you know, now I've been talking about it enough and reading stories and hearing others and watching the documentary. And now I feel like it was yesterday. So, you know, it's been, it's been fun, but I wish I was a little more, I wish I was a little more plugged in uh, a year ago. I think I would have been a better interview today. Yeah, it definitely could be possible because obviously it's all coming back now. And speaking of things coming back, do you remember the first time you actually met Michael Jordan? Well, it's funny you should ask the one question I can't answer because um, I did think about that because, you know, I've seen people quoted saying that, like how excited they were. And the only thing I could think of is that, I mean, one, I wasn't, I was young, but I wasn't a baby. I was 28. Uh, you know, I had, I'd worked in Florida. Uh, I covered Florida State. I had covered the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I had, you know, I'd been around the world. I covered Wimbledon. I did stuff. So maybe I wasn't quite as loud, but, but I also was very, very nervous um, about taking over from Sam Smith, who was the beat writer the year before. So I think the combination of sort of being somewhat of a veteran, but also being nervous and just wanting to make sure that I, you know, was on the job doing absolutely everything that I possibly could, that I think I didn't have time to really be, you know, I just had to act like I had been there before. And, um, and if there was some, you know, really funny or dramatic first meeting, I, I just don't remember. And I don't, I don't think there was, or else I would have um, remembered. He was always very nice to me and I still have a good relationship whenever I see him or talk to him, which isn't often, but um, you know, I've always really been fond of Michael. Yeah, and he, we saw some of the key moments of the first tie, like trip three-peat last week on The Last Dance. We saw the the infamous shrug when he decides he has to basically embarrass Clyde Drexler on in the game one of the 92 finals. Like, what was the reaction like in the ring when you see, when you see him make the 6-3 and he goes over and shrugs in Magic Johnson's direction? Oh, I very much remember exactly where I was sitting. And, you know, when he, when he kind of half-turned and shrugged towards the scores table, I was on the baseline and, you know, remembered it vividly. And, uh, you know, it was just too good to be true. And that, as a writer, it, that's how it was every night, honest to God. You know, it, if he wasn't doing something incredible on the court that you could write about, there was the color surrounding those games and all of their, you know, it was, they were just characters. And, and um, the you know, the dramatic fashion in which they won games and in which he performed. And so when he shrugged, it's like, as a sports writer, you're like, thank you, God. You know, I now have my story without even half trying to write it. You just get out of the way and let it write itself. So, yeah, I mean, that was, I remember that one very, very well. And, um, you know, like everyone else watching at home or watching there, I was just, you just had to shrug yourself. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And I mean, like, I think it was definitely cool also that they revisited Michael's time on the dream team with Scottie Pippen and all the rest last week. So like you have any interesting stories like that he told coming back, like from the dream team experience? Um, you know, I remember more about Scotty coming back and they were just exhausted. It was a hard act to follow after that, um, to get back into practice and to perform at that level. Scotty had, um, ankle surgery late in late August, which was sort of what he did later in his career, having surgery late. So he missed practice early on, which was kind of a thing with him, I think. 
um, Michael, you had to say whatever you could say about him. You know, he didn't do that. He didn't sort of, you know, miss practices. Uh, he didn't miss games, being sick. Um, you know, Phil was pretty sensitive about with veteran players and with them giving them time off when they needed it. So theoretically, you didn't really need it. But yeah, I just, you know, we just kind of jumped right back in. And, and of course, they were thrilled, but they were they were tired. They were very, very tired. Yeah, they were, and also, that's also the same year that Sam Smith's book comes out, The Jordan Rules, and we saw in the doc, in the last dance the impact it had on the team, and Michael Jordan in particular was not very thrilled with it. Like, you remember what the immediate fallout was like when that book came out and all the reaction to it? Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because now, you know, Sam talks about how gracious Michael was in in speaking to him, and and I do remember that, but I definitely remember there being a lot of tension. And I remember, you know, I took over the beat right after that. And, you know, he was not happy with Sam at all. And it was a lot of, uh, like I said, just awkwardness and tension walking into that beat at that point. And so it was, um, it, it, you know, it, in some ways it was good because Sam, I think, kind of softened everybody up and, you know, in later years, I would write a book and I would get good stuff and they were always still very open with me. But on the other hand, you know, I walked into an atmosphere that was fraught with some finger pointing and some, you know, who was the source and that sort of thing. So it, it was a bit tense. Yeah, for sure. And it was that whole, until the end of that whole season was tense. We saw with the, when we got to the 93 Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks, it's still a sore memory for me, but I remember, the, right. yeah. <laughs> Not fun for me. The Charles Smith game is a whole ideal, but the big storyline come out of that was Jordan's trip to Atlantic City after Game Two, after they lose and John Starks dunks on him, and there was a whole like scandal that came out. Everybody was like questioning his judgment there. So, at the time, what was your reaction when you heard that he had gone down to Atlantic City after that loss? To those of us who knew Michael had been around him, um, you know, it was a it was a column in Dave Anderson. It was a, it was in Dave Anderson's column that he went and. You know, sort of the uproar at that time was, oh, my God, you know, how would he stay up till 3.30 the day before a playoff game? And that part was sort of comical because we knew that this was a guy who played 72 holes of golf. I mean, that's not an exaggeration on days off between the playoff games. Um, he was a guy that, you know, later his father said, you know, we stayed up every night watching movies until 3.30. He was a world-class athlete in his prime, the best basketball player, you know, at the time and you know, some say, and I would say the best of all time. And he, he sort of thrived off a little sickness, a little fatigue. So, and as far as the gambling, um, you know, I, I know it was a scandal then just like gambling, you know, there was a certain seediness associated with gambling then and scandal that, that isn't as much now that, you know, granted, you know, an athlete gambling still has that, um, you know, the, the, the uh, controversial tone to it for sure, but it was not uh, something we were unused to. We knew that he bet on everything from, you know, we saw pitching pennies to to playing blackjack or poker on the plane. So again, like I, I think, you know, we probably thought in Chicago that it was the New York media kind of, you know, just, it, it was a very dramatic time and dramatic rivalry. And so, uh, is every day with some huge story. And, you know, that was New York's turn to sort of, you know, 
just be up in arms and, and uh, exalt over this, of this, you know, scandal that he had been in Atlantic City. But I'm not sure that those of us in the Chicago media thought it was as big a deal. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously he wins the title, then he goes through that summer, and then his father is killed over the summer. And then right before the 93-94 season, he announces he's retiring. So, like, how big a shock was it to the city of Chicago at the time that Michael just walked away in the middle of his prime? Yeah, um, it, it was for sure. I mean, I'm writing a, a blog for my website right now that, you know, I, I had talked to him in Houston, and for whatever reason, I got him alone. I think the other two beat writers didn't make the trip, or I just got time with them, and it was in January, and the team was really struggling. They had lost to um, Orlando, and Michael had taken this 40-something shots. Uh, I want to say – it was a career high at the time. I want to say it was 49. It was a crazy number of shots. And every everybody was saying, well, there he goes again. You know, he's uh, taking over the team, and it's Jordan and the, you know, extraordinaires or whatever they call them, Jordanaires. Um, and so he was really pissed. And he said, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. He started grumbling like that in January. I, I'm not sure. I know I didn't think that meant he really was going to retire. But later he told me that, he had told his teammates that just watch, I'm not, you're not going to have me around anymore. Like he was just not having fun in practice. He didn't feel like his teammates, you know, were, they were backbiting. They're doing things that championship teams do. Um, still in all, you know, on that day, October 6th, the day of the press conference when he announced he was retiring in 1993 was, was an unbelievable shock. You know, it was, Seconded only by when he said, I'm back, you know, when he came back. Um, no one really thought he'd go through with it. And I think about five seconds after the press conference started rumors of when he'd be back. So I don't think anybody was even accepting it. I think everybody was sort of in denial. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I'm sure they were also just surprised to see him go show up to play minor league baseball for the Birmingham Barons. So, like, was there right. this era of disbelief within the Bulls fans? Like, why is he choosing to play minor league baseball and hit, like, 230 as opposed to being on the court winning titles for us? I don't think anyone was ever mad at him. You know, he just had his father murdered in horrific fashion. It was clear that he was having, you know, issues that he had to deal with. Uh, I think people hoped he would be back. You know, they had just won three titles, so it certainly wasn't a case of um, – you know, this guy let us down. I mean, he was 30 years old. It was seemingly very premature for him to walk away. But I don't know that there was any resentment at that point. I think there was a great deal of fascination that, um, you know, that uh, that he was playing baseball. And can he be that good? You know, and can he, what can he, you know, what can he do? Uh, can he possibly even come close to, you know, to the kind of excitement that, talent certainly but the kind of excitement he generated in basketball so I think that was more than anything just intense interest yeah there was definitely interest there it was also people forget about that 93-94 Bulls team's the only one Jordan wasn't on in the middle of the run and people forget that team was actually pretty good they I mean Scottie Pippen led the team they took the Knicks to the seven yeah. games in the, in the semifinals for falling there so like what was like the tone of that whole season without Jordan there and Pippen being the leading man well, I wrote a book on that season um, because it was so fascinating. One, it was called Transition Game, and it was the double entendre of, you know, both 
both the Bulls known for their transition um, from defense to offense. That's where their greatness sort of lied. Um, but also Michael's transition out of basketball to baseball uh, and the Bulls transition to surviving without him. And I guess that was a triple entendre, but um, <laughs> Pippen had his greatest season arguably ever. He kind of found himself. He had some real low points. Um, but his teammates loved him, and he, I believe he almost averaged a triple-double. He was uh, arguably the league MVP. David Robinson won it, but I think I think uh, Pippen's controversies off the court cost him uh, that because there was, you know, of course in Chicago they would think it, but um, a lot of people really thought he was cheated out of that MVP award, and, you know, whether he was or not, he had an unbelievable season, and the Bulls, no one ever expected them you know, to win 55 games and, and almost beat the Knicks. And, you know, they could have, if not for a Hugh Holland's call, um, you know, been in the conference championship against an Indiana team that they had their way with. And, you know, then they'd be in the finals. I mean, that's, you know, every team could say that, but they certainly were close. Yeah, they were. And then they start the next year without him. And then we find out that basically like Michael Jordan decides, I'm not going to be used as a pawn by the owners in baseball to basically be a scab player after the strikes. He announces literally in epic fashion. He sends out a press release, two words, I'm back. Like, what was the, the reaction to that? And, like, how excited were all the fans to see Michael Jordan come back? Yeah, I mean, it was something that, like I said, was rumored and hoped for. Uh, and then, you know, when he did it, it was just met with um, – I mean, with utter glee, because you just felt like, uh, look, they were they were really good without him. They were, like I said, you know, really pretty close. Um, and the thought was, well, that's it. You know, they're going to win another one. I think that was pretty much the feeling. Um, and just to be able to sort of get an opportunity to uh, to watch him again um, was pretty was pretty crazy. So you know, he started out with the number forty five jersey. Uh, you know, and, and uh, Jerry Reinsdorf said he expected him to play another three, four years. You know, Pippen was still there. So, yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't the same team. Paxton was gone. Bill Cartwright was gone. Horace Grant was gone. But they had Tony Kukoc, and so that was going to be fun. And Steve Kerr joined the team. So, uh, And he was excited, Michael. He was definitely, um, you know, he, he kept the door open all that time. It was 18 months that he was out of the game, and he had said sort of never say never. Um, but he also would kept saying, and Phil Jackson kept saying, but I never really thought it was going to happen. And then here he was. So uh, it was, and he looked great. He looked like he could, you know, maybe his legs were even stronger. And he was not afraid of tainting his image, which people kind of said. And he had been also rumored and indeed had been playing with the team, had been practicing with the team. So, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at the stories I'm talking to. I mean, President Clinton issued a statement. It's great for Chicago. It's great for Illinois. It's great for basketball. Mayor Daley, the Chicago mayor at that time. Um, it was it was major, you know, major, major news. Yeah, I'm sure everyone was thrilled. But the thing that was always striking me looking back there, including like me as a Nick fan, again, the double nickel game, the fact that Jordan is wearing 45. So, like, did that like just feel like odd? Like, yes, he's here, but like it's not the same Jordan that we've seen before. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. You know, it took him a little while to to get into the. You know, <laughs> he could be forgiven for that, but it I think it was sixteen games, maybe or nineteen games at most, um, until the playoffs, and definitely he um, 
was not quite the same. And then to see him in 45 was really surreal. I remember I, I was a little mini scoop of mine. I um, saw the equipment manager actually sewing on his number 45 on his uniform. And, you know, in those days, obviously, we didn't have social media. So to wait till the next morning. And I think my editor didn't really believe me because that would be really embarrassing if that wasn't true. And so it was kind of a little box story that Michael was coming back as number 45. Uh, you know, and of course, there's the rush to stores to buy number 45 jersey, and uh, he didn't stay in that for long. But yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. I think he, I think at the time, I could be wrong that he said he, his father, had, you know, part of his emotion in retiring was he didn't want his father to, uh, he wanted his father to have seen every single game he played. So when he came back, it's like, well, you know, my father saw every single game I played in number 23. So he was going to start. That was kind of how I think he reconciled it in his own mind. And then, um, you know, clearly that just wasn't working for him. So he became number 23 again. Yeah, I know that. I know that change, like in the playoffs when they were playing Orlando in the second round, and like they they he gets beat up in game one or two, and Nick Anderson I think says for the Magic said, "I have no idea who forty five is. That's not Michael Jordan." Then he changes the jersey back. But like, what was the tone for the team when they go through that series with the Magic? And that's the last playoff loss Jordan has his entire career. Yeah, I I mean, like I said, I think he just wasn't ready, you know, at that time. And uh, it was was weird. It was awkward. It was, um, I do remember, you know, just seeing him on a a court in a playoff and the the Bulls losing. I don't remember every detail of that game, but it was was surreal in itself, you know. Um, But I thought, I think there's so much hope about them just coming back and kind of bouncing back. And then sure enough, Kraus gets Rodman. And, you know, um, it was clear that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be um, very long before he got back into form and and the Bulls got back into form. Yeah, indeed. It's my last question for you. It's really like, one thing I've really been curious about is like being around Phil Jackson on a day-to-day basis. Cause everybody knows like he's sort of like out there. He does have his own like philosophies on things. What was it like being around Phil on a day-to-day basis? Well, the joke was, you know, what are you writing today? And it'd be like, whatever Phil says, because he was also a blessing for any writer. You know, he was, uh, so, you know, insightful and, you know, he, we kind of mocked him a bit because he'd say, oh, he's a deep thinker. You know, I think he called himself a deep thinker once. It's kind of when someone calls himself one, you, you know, uh, you kind of chuckle a little bit, but he was, you know, he was. I mean, who else is lighting, you know, incense in, in uh, team meetings and uh, giving his players books and celebrating Casimir uh, Pulaski Day, uh, you know, by explaining Chicago history to his team and, having talked about gun control and, you know, not all of that got out at the time, but certainly he, he always uh, had something really interesting to say. And, you know, I found him to be um, great to to work with as a young writer. You know, I felt like I was being educated uh, by him and by Tex Winter and and Johnny Bach, his assistants um, who were, who were terrific. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed Phil. I thought he was, and he was funny, you know, he had a dry sense of humor. Um, you know, he would make fun of some of his players at times. He would uh, protect them at other times, but he was never boring. 
Yeah, he never was boring. Melissa Eisen, thank you for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I, I let you go, do you want to let people know how to find you on social media and keep up with some of the stuff you're up to and some of the stuff you've written? Well, um, on Twitter, it's at MK Isaacson, and uh, my website is uh, MelissaIsaacson.com. So um, people can read the prologue of my relatively new book uh, called State, about my 1979 state championship uh, girls basketball team, one of the first teams in Illinois. We beat Jackie Joyner's team and kind of a coming-of-age story about uh, the first generation of girls post title nine. So the prologue is there and, you know, I write a lot about the bulls. Um, so yeah, they could, anybody can certainly visit that it would be great. All right. Thanks again for taking time. I really appreciate it. Sure. Mike. Thank you. All right. And there you have it. That was Melissa Isaacson recounting some memories from the mid nineties, Chicago bulls, some very fun stuff there and definitely worth looking at as you want to go back and want to rewatch some of the episodes of The Last Dance with this information. It's a much more interesting context. And speaking of The Last Dance, we're going to recap episodes 7 and 8 with Dandy Martini and Phil Lombardo right after this. back week number four recapping the last dance and we got probably the two most interesting episodes to date excited to bring in two of my good friends who discuss with me and two people who are actually in the appropriate age range actually remember some of these events as they were happening first up our golf guy on this podcast dandy martini dan welcome how are you doing well mike thanks for having me and thank you for coming on and also welcome back to the podcast the first time since football season phil lombardo phil welcome back how are you Doing great, Mike. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let me ask, I haven't checked in with you in a bit. How's quarantine life going? About as good as it can go. Um, still employed, still working, just from home. And uh, just trying to get as many variations of home workouts as possible thrown at me so I can keep myself busy. Yeah, there you go. That's the way to do it. And before we dive into the latest two episodes, I think we're probably, as Jason Taylor, the director, said, we're probably the most fascinating of the bunch. I want to ask each of you guys, like, we're obviously in the generation where we remember this team playing. I don't know how much you actually remember of some of the backstory of this. So, Phil, I'll go to you first. What do you remember most about that 97-98 Bulls team? I mean, that specific team, I... For me, the last three years, the last three championships, both teams kind of molded into each other a little bit, you know, just, you know, having a similar lineup and uh, similar sort of dominance. But I do just remember the beginning of that season, finding out that that was going to be Phil Jackson's last year. And I remember just lobbying. I wanted the Knicks to uh, try to go after him because I was like, Phil Jackson is by far the best coach I've ever seen, and then I was being a young basketball fan, you know, you don't quite have the knowledge that we have now, but uh, for me, I just, honestly just the aura of Jordan it also being, uh, the chance of it being Jordan's last year, 
because Jordan said he wouldn't play for another coach. And uh, it was just, you know, I I didn't I didn't buy it really. I thought that uh, Jordan would still end up playing, which he did. But uh, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I, for me, it was just it, it was just you know it could be their last hurrah, and uh, it was just exciting to watch it, you know, all unfold. You know, I I kind of had a different sense. Um, in just that I don't think I truly understand understood the greatness at the time um, uh, of what they had already done to that point. Um, it's something that, you know, as we've gotten older, you've just really come to appreciate. You just don't see people, and you don't see teams form with that kind of camaraderie that those guys had and the passion and love that they had for each other with Bill Jackson. Um, I've always I always grew up kind of in the... I liked very specific players, um, and I liked teams that were not really on TV very often. So, you know, what you got was if you didn't get the Knicks or the Nets, you got the Bulls. So I do have very fond memories of being really young and watching the game with my dad and getting, you know, my dad was always always very, very passionate about how to play basketball the right way, how to play defense the right way, how to pass the ball, good shooting technique. It was something he instilled in me very early. So I have very fond memories. And this documentary has done a fantastic job of showcasing some of the best plays that they had as a team. I mean, you don't see it in today's NBA, but there would be some plays where Dennis Rodman would kick it to Pippen Pippen to Kerr, Kerr to Jordan, Jordan back to Pippen for an easy layup. I mean, when do you see four or five passes for, uh, you know, the easy shot in in today's NBA? And so those are the the things that I really um, grew to cherish. And it's the reason why I played basketball in in my personal life as long as I have. So it's been amazing to kind of rekindle those those feelings from, from growing up. Yeah, indeed. And with that, let's not go any further. We're going to put the spoiler warning up. Okay, if you have not seen episodes seven and eight of The Last Dance, you've not watched up to that point, and you want to not be spoiled, get out, go watch the two hours, come back and listen to this. But I think we got to start off with this the beginning of this episode where we basically get the whole sequence of events with Jordan's dad, like, being killed in 1993, the retirement, the conversation with Phil Jackson. Uh, Phil, what was your take on seeing all that fresh? Yeah, so um, obviously, you know, you you knew what happened to Jordan's father. I mean, at least most basketball fans knew what happened. Um, But seeing it in detail and kind of getting a lot of different people's perspectives really just opened my eyes. Um, I mean, Jordan's Michael Jordan's relationship with his father from the outside looking in seems like the relationship any father or son would dream to have. Um, you know, not only was did Michael see his father as his father, but he was his best friend as well. And um, to have your father taken away from you like that, especially with that kind of relationship, would be traumatizing to anybody. And uh, knowing all this, it kind of made per- perfect sense speaking to why MJ decided to pursue a baseball career. Um, but when it comes down to it, that Ahmad Rashad bit where he spoke about tying MJ's tie before the funeral was just heartbreaking to listen to. And it was definitely a tearjerker, and I thought one of the more solemn uh, aspects of this entire series so far. Yeah, you know, 
I don't remember as much because you know we were we were so young around the way that this documentary, at least episode seven, kind of starts um, with Jordan's father's death. It really sent me down a rabbit hole. I don't know how all of you have been watching this documentary, but as soon as something comes up or like a really cool sequence or a player that they reference Jordan going up against that I don't remember that well, I've been like immediately just Googling the heck out of everything. And so I spent about two hours this morning trying to figure out what really went down with Michael Jordan's father and who these guys that jumped in, um, took his car, took those championship rings, who they really were, um, and trying to piece together like the crime itself um but long story short on that i mean it it it, as phil said i mean it's an amazing thing of what we as growing up we just all we've heard is oh michael jordan walked away from basketball he went to baseball it didn't work out he went back to basketball for his first love and then he left the game again and then he came back so that's all we remember but when you really now hear from the people that were around Michael and you see the footage and you see the swarms of cameras and the fans and the security staff and just just what he was going through emotionally and the, and physically the demands that he was putting on himself you really understand why he, he stepped away from the game and I don't think anybody can blame him for wanting to do something that was passionate to to what his father had said to him, and he says right in the, the, the episode, he says straight up, the last conversation I had with my father was about going to baseball. So I thought that that was really, really well done. And it was uh, a very, very, in my mind, a small point of, oh, Michael Jordan retired and, and he wanted to go try baseball. But now that we really got all those juicy details of what was going on on the inside and that, that kind of, um, I don't even know, just that genuine Michael Jordan um, telling us what was really going on. I, I, I just loved every minute of it. Yeah, I got to say, like that thing, that whole sequence was great. I mean, we will touch back on the relationship we have with his father, which basically hovers over these two hours very much. But I think fascinating is the whole mindset that this was not like something that, according to popular like myths, it was not like a secret gambling suspension. It was not like... He, he retired because his father died. It was something that he was planning on doing long before. It's something that my guest, Melissa Ixon, said earlier in the podcast, basically, like, she had talked to him, I think, in January of 93, and he was basically saying, you know what, I was thinking about retiring at that point, and he basically says, I knew after the 92 Olympics I wanted to retire, but, you know, I wanted to win three in a row because Magic and Larry hadn't done that, and I just thought that whole conversation he had with Phil Jackson about, you know what, I'm done, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, and just to add on to that real quick, um, I was unaware that the media was kind of spiraling that story about his father's death being attributed to his gambling and his behavior. And maybe he was in deep with some, some bookies and it caused people to go after his father. And I just couldn't, I can't even imagine what that put, in, in, you know, put Michael through at that time because, you know, already on top of the fact that he lost his father and his best friend, then he's getting blamed partially for it. I, I, it's, just, it's beyond me. And I, 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 the fact that that was even thought of without having any sliver of evidence 
I, I don't I don't know if I would have handled it the way Michael did because I think any athlete today would have came out into the public and shut that down completely, but in a little more of a you know aggressive tone than Michael did. You know what's interesting there, Phil, is that you know in in today's kind of I I think as we're watching all of these episodes, this is a, just another instance where you think about what Jordan would be facing nowadays with social media and people picking sides and, and hiding behind their keyboard. And uh, while, while the press back then was able to direct a narrative and Jordan was having to stand up for himself, you wonder what the, the you know, this Twitter world that we're in now, the people that would come to his defense, who would outweigh who if everybody had a say? And it seems like back then, Jordan had to really get tougher than today's current athlete. He had to be the one. If you did, if you said something that was false or you made up a story about him and he knew it, he. I loved it. The Sports Illustrated thing that we'll get into later. He just said, if you didn't, if you're not coming to me and you don't respect me enough to ask me the question personally, you're gone. You're out. And he, I, I, I respected the crap out of Michael for the way he handled a lot of that. Yeah, he did. And you brought the baseball thing. I will go, wow. might as well go there next because this is a lot of the episode we spend on Michael's baseball career. And we, we've seen they had a 30 for 30 on it before way back in the day about what they called Jordan Rides the Bus. And we didn't get a ton of new footage there. But, like, I think this one was interesting because we do get some interesting insights from his manager at the time, Terry Francona, who did have this to say. Can't believe he actually hit 202. He drove in 50 runs. We had a lot of good prospects that didn't drive in 50 runs. In my opinion, with 1,500 at bats, he'd have found a way to get to the major league. That's a fascinating soundbite to me. I don't think he would put his reputation on the line just say, you know what, like, oh, Michael Jordan could have been an MLB player with just 1,500 at bats. He definitely saw something there. Everybody wanted him to fail. It seems like everybody was so shocked that he walked away from basketball. The immediate narrative was he's 31 and he's going to go play baseball. 250 runs, like hitting 202 and 50 runs. Like, are you, are you like that? And to just jump into double a ball. I mean, come on now. And if that was happening today, I mean, we saw what happened with Sebo. I mean, and Sebo got to start in, you know, the, the lowest of low instructional leagues and work his way up. And he hasn't even produced kind of like that. So I'm, all, all I'll say is Jordan, really, people just, this narrative was always trying to, to take down the guy at the top. And it's a real shame, but it just goes in, in, to a testament of just what kind of a competitor he was. Yeah, and I just to piggyback off what you're saying, Dan, it's like I just feel like for most people it was selfish for them to want him to fail because they did, they want him to fail so he came back and played basketball. Because Michael, there's no argument here that Michael at that time was the greatest athlete possibly that they had ever seen play in a uh, organized sport. And people were just being selfish. They didn't want him to succeed because they knew he would never eclipse what he was in basketball. And he would, even if he was an, a major leaguer, he would just end up being a pretty good major leaguer at, at the at the most, real, you know. And that's a realistic. That's a, that's a, that's about as realistic of an expectation as you can even have with somebody starting 
a career in baseball at 31. And I assume most people would kind of teeter on believing or not believing Terry Francona if he was being genuine. But I mean, he was the one there watching MJ take batting practice before games and after games for him, you know, putting in all that extra work. And like, like Terry said in the documentary, he respected what they were doing and he wanted to succeed um, as much or more than anybody else out there. So, I mean, he saw MJ putting in the work, his commitment to succeeding, and there was no reason for him to lie just to make MJ what? Look good? You know, I mean, MJ looked pretty good on his own. And I think 202 driving in 50 runs in a, at 31 years old in double A ball, like not even it's just skipping all the inferior leagues and going right to double A, that's pretty impressive. From, from what you saw, Phil, do you think that, like, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I'm like, is MJ really trying to be, like, a 10-year MLB player? I know he, he, in his mind, was, I want to prove that I can do it. And he worked his tail off, and they talked about how he changed his routine and his, his training and his stretching and all of those things. Um, and he gave it a good run. I mean, but I think it was more so he just wanted to do it to kind of pay homage to his father and to kind of live out that dream as well. I think that if you take most professional athletes, maybe just a couple that, I don't know, maybe Russell Wilson, but um, if you take most professional athletes and that don't play baseball and throw them into baseball and expect them to hit 200 with 50 runs, it's not going to happen. So I actually think that MJ deserved a lot more credit than he got. I agree with you on that. But do you think that he was really thinking this could be, he would just play baseball for the rest of his kind of top athletic years in his early to mid thirties? I'm not I, sure. I don't, I don't know if that's what he thought was going to happen, but like just hypothetically speaking, let's say he just took off, you know, he ended up being a lot more successful early on than anybody could have imagined. He gets moved up to the majors in his first year, uh, and he actually ends up producing a little bit. I think he might have stuck it out a little bit longer because he would have, you know, that that, that was a viable career path for him. Um, but I really, I agree with you 100% that it was paying homage to his father. He felt closer to his father when he was on a baseball field, I believe. And I think that's partially why he did what he did. Yeah, he, actually, he does mention that well at the points we're talking about this when he says, you know, like, I feel at peace knowing that my father saw my last basketball game like that. And these whole things like I want my dad to be able to know I follow my dream to play baseball as well. And I do think it's interesting thought experiment. I'm like, if the ninth, the strike doesn't happen and they're not asking Jordan to be a scab player, maybe he does stick it out a little longer and doesn't go right back to basketball. Yeah, I agree fully. Yeah. Before we get back to Jordan's return to basketball, let's go back to the 93, 94 season for the bulls perspective, because we did a lot about that team. We saw their whole situation go with the – they go through the season. Scotty becomes, like, the man on the team. They end up going through the playoffs with the Knicks, and they lose to the – I want to say – yeah, they lose to the Knicks there, but we have the whole controversy in Game 3 where Scotty Pippen basically does not get drawn up the last play. Phil draws it up for Kukoc. Kukoc is the game winner, and Scotty says, you know what, I'm not taking the floor. I'm sitting this one out, and – he, at the time, basically apologized, but in the doc itself, he basically said, I would have done it again. I would have felt disrespected. And to me, I just feel like Scotty is just losing like, ground week by week on this doc. I don't think that his reputation is doing is gaining much from this. Even Jordan called him out for being selfish in that regard. Yeah, I mean, for me, I uh, 
I lost a lot of respect for Scotty uh, after watching that this episode. Um, I always had very high regard. He's the you know, top 50 player of all time, maybe even higher. And uh, I think for any player to do that, I don't care what your role is on the team. Um, even if you are, even if you're Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson says, you're not taking the last shot because I see something that I think is going to succeed. Wouldn't you trust the coach that's led you to three straight championships? Like, I mean, I know that it's not it's your first chance of being the spotlight. And this is your moment, Scotty. There's an opportunity for you to be the guy. But if the situation calls for Tony Kukoc to get the final shot, then Tony Kukoc is getting the final shot. And you doubling down in a documentary, however many years later, 30 years later, 35 years later, and saying that you do the same thing over again, just kind of makes you look like a schmuck. And it makes you look stubborn. And it's just kind of silly. And I just, I don't know. I think that MJ probably seeing Scotty say that this many years later made MJ probably lose more respect for him than he already had from that happening in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree as well. I've, I've been saying this from the beginning. I, Scotty has not helped himself. This documentary has only moved him in the negative from the bad contract signing, which was just insane to be only making what he was making for seven-year contract, um, to the decision that we, you know, we're going to eventually get back to him, assuming in episodes nine and ten. Uh, but that, you know, the final season, waiting on getting surgery on his foot because he wanted to quote unquote enjoy his summer. Um, really, really doesn't look good, and he's not helping himself. And he's and what's crazy is that he's part of the documentary, and he's getting a chance to speak to the interviewers, the, the documentarians, and give his side of things. And he's just not helping himself here. And good on Tony Kukoc, who, <laughs> you know, in all of this, my favorite bull from all those years really was Tony Kukoc. I remember that it was kind of a cool thing. You know, you, you got to see he was in that early phase of European players that had some moderate success, and, and you knew his name. You didn't necessarily, at, at our age, when we were watching the team, we didn't necessarily know who he was. I, I don't know how much time you want to spend on Tony Kukoc, but good on him for going from kind of being a, a, a hero on his team in, in Europe uh, and then coming over to the Bulls and taking that secondary, or I, I would say he was probably like fourth, fifth option on the team, and uh, and and making they showed in the documentary how many clutch shots the guy was. He was not afraid to make the shot, and you know to, to bring this full circle to Pippen. I mean, it just shows a lack of respect that Pippen had for his own teammates. It was was it truly just him and Michael, and he was okay with that. I mean, if I was a full teammate at the time and I don't know if I could ever really forgive him for that but somehow they did they talked it through and 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 were able to to bring it back but I mean man wow that is as low as it gets to walk out on your team we've seen it in sports in recent years we've seen it in the NFL guys that leave early for halftime um you know it at the end of a game they just don't want to deal with it and uh that is about as diva as it gets so yeah, Dan, just to let you know, yeah, Tony Kukoc averaged 11 points a game, which was the fourth most on his team at the time, behind B.J. Armstrong, Horace Grant, and Scottie Pippen. Um, but you didn't see B.J. Armstrong and Horace Grant getting upset that they weren't getting the final shot. I understand that Scottie was always number two to MJ, and this is what 
he thought he deserved. But no, no, Scotty, you, you average 22 points a game, and the, the fourth the fourth option, who was a, a, a young stud, he's 25 years old, not like Tony Kukos was like not a veteran. He's been playing basketball for a long time. He, the, a Hall of Fame coach, a future Hall of Fame coach, wanted to draw up a play for him, and I just don't understand why you'd act like a child in that situation. Yeah, and the play he drew up, Jackson even says, they thought that defensively what they were facing, this play was going to work, and Kukoc has already hit it five times and proven yeah. he can do it. Yeah. So why wouldn't you go with? Why wouldn't you go with that? If Pippen got them there, what does the one shot really matter? That just shows somebody who is insecure with their their own position on the team. And you know maybe that was Pippen showing a little bit that you know he was trying to be Michael, but he wasn't Michael. And that's what really made him upset. I don't know. Yeah, speaking of Michael, I mean, like, we get to see this series, like, how the difference is between what he gets at, how he views his relationship with his teammates, and compared to, like, other guys that we just saw with how Scotty viewed his teammates. And I think probably the most powerful moment we've had out of George's entire series came at the end of Episode 7. I did pull the clip, so I want to play that, get your reaction to it. I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, like, when you when I saw it the first time, I'm like, wow, this is really, really good stuff. It's, like, really raw, really genuine Jordan, and, like, we've gotten a lot of that in the doc, but I don't think we've ever gotten, like, something like that, and it's something that Jason, the hair of the director, has said, like, that stuff is phenomenal. Um, I mean, I, so, I mean, before watching this, there was always that kind of dialogue about Jordan being a bad teammate and being an a-hole, being a jerk, um, being unfair. And I, I think I've done a complete 180 because I was pretty uneducated on that whole thing because it's all behind the scenes and, and hearsay, basically. You know, there was never anything interviewing all the teammates about Michael. You know, there was, there was never anything out there for us to watch. And um, I think it's all a load of BS about him being a bad teammate. Um, and he, he said before the documentary that he was worried about the documentary making him look like a bad person. He's a human just like everybody else. Um, I think he was a good teammate, actually, on the contrary. Um, maybe he expected a little too much from people, which is natural because he was the greatest to ever do it. And he had expectations for himself, which he probably held everybody else to the same standard, which is a little unfair, I guess. But um, he, along with Phil Jackson, created a winning culture for a losing franchise. And um, that's not an easy thing to do. And sometimes... Like, I loved his back and forth with Scotty Burrell. I thought that was just really awesome, awesome footage. Um, pushing the young rookie who he saw talent, he saw potential, but thought he might have been a little soft on the outside. And you know what? Um, I think that paid dividends for the team down the road. And, it, you know, I don't think that team without Michael does as well as they do in 94, in the 94 season, um, without having that culture and children. And I think that's why I suffered the next year because they were two years removed from Michael. The year after, they still had the championship in their back of their head. They still had that winning mentality. And I just, I, I feel like uh, he just kind of, he kind of got the raw, a raw deal when it came to not having the truth, truth really be out there until this documentary came out. 
Yeah, and to kind of kind of piggyback off that, I I had mixed emotions about it because on one hand, I'm like, all right, he's the best NBA player of all time, and he's the toughest competitor, arguably ever to play in sports. And the guy had the ultimate drive to win, and he was naturally you were either gonna rise to his expectations or you were gonna let him down. And you knew that if you brought the best, he was trying to bring the best out in you. And so I'm kind of torn on this. I I thought it was a little unfair of the guys to be taking shots. Like, would we really be, would we know the names of Luke Longley and Bill Cartwright and, you know, all these guys, you know, maybe we know Paxton and Kerr, but, you know, would we really be talking about these guys if it wasn't for Michael Jordan bringing them to all those titles, I mean, let's think about that Bulls team from 1989 to 1998 without Jordan, right? I mean, come on. It would, it would just be a footnote of whatever they would do. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I really feel like they should have been more appreciative for all that Michael was doing to make them the best players that they possibly could be and give them this platform uh for success. And I'm sure that, you know, as much as he was tough on them then, if they could, you know, flash forward to the future and see the success and credibility that Steve Kerr has now, that John Paxton has as a GM and a front office guy now, I mean, none of that would have happened had Michael Jordan not driven them to that point. And I always appreciated the tough love teammates, the guys that you wanted to get into a fight with, um, because as soon as you met them eye to eye and you fought back with them, you knew that that bond and respect between each other was never going to go away. So I was really torn on them taking their shots. Maybe MJ pushed it. He was too much all the time, and that's just not okay. There's kind of a, a, a guy code in, on sports teams, team sports, where you know you should you got to kind of know when to, to put it on and when you're having a bad practice, you know, regroup and and keep the status quo but it sounds like to me that they were they were leaning or i'm leaning that a lot of them should just be thankful for everything that michael did yeah i mean judd bushler said um that you know he was he was an a-hole he was a jerk and they all and, and a lot of the guys said at the time but then he goes and says looking back on it you know it was coming from a good a good place you know with good intentions and, you know, obviously he just, like I said before, he's human. He's going to make mistakes. You know, even Michael Jordan is human. But, you know, he was still, he had new players funneling into Chicago every year. You know, it wasn't the same exact team every year. So he had to instill a winning culture. And, and Michael said that in this, I don't know if it was the seventh or the eighth episode, but he said that, he, you know, he needed to show that tough love and make sure people knew what it took to win. And, you know, what's interesting there, too, is, you know, they really didn't talk about whether he was ever able to truly grieve the loss of his father. And I'm wondering, and they did mention the fact that it was hard for Michael to come back and play basketball knowing that his father wasn't going to be there as soon as he got off the court. So maybe there was that anger, that frustration that, you know, how could this have happened to my father uh, that he never truly dealt with, that he was taking out his frustration and the one thing he knew he could control, and that was his team and that Bulls team. 
So there could have been, I got the sense that there's some underlying, um, you know, grieve, a grievance just within him that he hasn't been, or sadness that he hasn't been able to emotionally deal with at that time too. So I'm not a therapist or anything, but it's it, in, as we're watching the documentary, you do get the sense that that hurt him more than he let on. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to say they show that clip of him winning the third title, and he's just laying on the ground crying, and you can just yeah. see he just let everything out because he, you know, he he probably bottled things up inside of him for so long, just like he did when he won his first title. You know, he's just sitting there crying, he's so happy, but you know, because he just has all the, the pressure of the world on him, and then on top of the fact that he, he's dealing with the loss of his father being partially blamed for it and, you know, just, you know, being just emotionally and physically drained from just all this basketball and just nonstop media attention and attention from fans never really getting a break during his life. Um, you know, that's why he said, I just, any time, any chance I had to be alone, I'm going to be alone because I just need to get away from everybody. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I actually do have that clip on on the board here, the uh, clip of Jordan winning that fourth title. So I'm gonna do. I will go to that right now. Uh, Michael, I know that the first one was sweet, but how much sweeter was this one? Well. I can't even put it in words. My father said what it means to me. I know he's watching. My wife, to my, my kids, to my mother, my brothers and sisters. This is for daddy. I'm very happy for you. That one really, really hits you home, like with with the music, with the, the footage, everything. I mean, that one's just like you just see it all just come out of him right there. You just can't, like, like Phil said a minute ago. It's like he literally just gave everything he had in that game, and you just saw the weight just be lifted off his shoulders, and like just had a moment to like actually be human. It's like really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, and it, it would it have shocked anybody if you know two days later he's back in the gym again. I mean, he truly is. Uh, one of a kind. I mean, you can talk about the greats in all the other sports, but we are getting an inside view unlike anything we'll see from any other competitor. Um, it, it really, I mean, it's clips like that that make you just kind of lose yourself in that moment again. So really, really great stuff. Yeah, I, I had chills. I had chills watching it. And when I saw that clip, and, and it's happened like, over and over again, it makes me, I just see Kobe in Michael so much now, you know, because we got to see Kobe a lot more coherently than we got to see Michael. And it's like watching a reincarnate of Michael Jordan was Kobe Bryant. You saw all these mannerisms, all the way he carried himself, the way he talked to the media, the way he played the game. And I know this is an older episode, but it just, I had to get that out because I just keep seeing Kobe. And uh, it's just, it, you know, and Michael said at, in his, when he was giving his eulogy, 
that, you know, he's like a little brother. And I, I think Kobe just wanted to be as close to Michael Jordan as he could possibly be. And he might forever be as close to Michael as we'll ever see. Yeah, for sure. Kobe, I mean, that, that's the thing that bothers me also is everybody basically LeBron's the next, the next Jordan, LeBron this, LeBron that. Like, they are not even remotely the same players. Like, Kobe is far closer to what Jordan's essence was than LeBron ever has been. I compare yeah, I, LeBron more to Magic when it comes down to it. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I Having now really watched this documentary, instead of just saying who's better, I think the, the better just buckets to put them in is exactly what you said. Put Michael and Kobe, put LeBron and Magic. They're just, it's just they've gone about it in totally different ways. And LeBron wants to be loved and liked. And Michael and Kobe earned love. They didn't. They didn't ask for it. They didn't care for it. And I, I truly think that this has put that dividing line in my mind. And all fantastic players. But for me, I just now look at. I look as much as you now see Kobe as and Michael and the comparisons. For me, I think less of the LeBron Michael comparison in my mind. This is actually separated them for me. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah, this is you got you see a lot of the differences between especially like the drive to like make the teammates better and all that. There's nothing we really see out of LeBron and like I doubt we've ever had a situation with LeBron like the one we had with we saw in the episode tonight with Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr and getting both sides of that fight was actually very interesting. So let me that's my last clip I have for the for the audio. So I wanna play that for a minute. So one day at practice, Phil put Steve Kerr guarding me. We were on opposite sides in a scrimmage, and he's talking all kinds of trash, and I'm pissed because, you know, we're getting our ass kicked. Phil sensed my aggression, but he was trying to tone me down, and he starts calling these tick attack fouls. Now, I'm getting mad because for you to be protecting this guy, that's not... It's not going to help us when we play New York. It's not going to help us when we play these teams that are very physical. Next time he did it, I just hauled off the and I, I said, when I fouled Steve Kerr, I said, now nah, that's foul. I have a lot of patience as a human being, but um, I tend to snap at some point because I'm extremely competitive too. Just not really good enough to back it up usually, but I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to fight. He hauls off and hits me in the chest and I just haul off and hit him right in the eye. And Phil just throws me out of practice. Yeah, I think it's something that Dan Murphy brought up earlier. So I was waiting for the time to get back to it, the whole Steve Kerr, Michael Jordan fight. And, like, you do see, like, at the times that, like, Michael does at times cross the line where he you know, he does go too far. But, like, he admits after, afterwards in this interview, the clip is not part of this this thing that I downloaded here. He basically said, you know, like, Steve Kerr earned my respect that day because I saw the fight in him. And then they were sort of respecting each other. That's something I thought that was interesting that Dan was hinting at earlier. Yeah, and, and he breaks down. He talks about it as well. I mean, he, he says straight up that he, you know, who am I to be hitting the smallest guy on the team? You know, what kind of a leader am I? And it, that was more important to me was not that Steve Kerr challenged him because, good, you know, good on Steve Kerr for, for stepping up to him because Jordan clearly found the line and crossed it. Um, but also on Steve Kerr, uh, on Michael for just saying like, you know, wow, okay, maybe I've, maybe I need to realize that not everybody is like me and I need to continue to adapt 
for the success of this team. And he really, it was cool to see him internalize that and pick up the phone and call Kerr and apologize. Because I don't know how many professional athletes nowadays get in an argument with a teammate and instead of saying, wow, I was wrong, and then call that teammate later in the day uh, to apologize and be the bigger man instead of just calling their agent looking for a trade. So, I mean, it, 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 it kind of says something about the character of Michael. Um, but Steve Kerr as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you got you to gotta just look at it from MJ's perspective too. You know, you're Michael Jordan. You know, you are pretty much God when it comes to – the NBA at that time, and and actually all sports, and for a small, you know, six foot three little white guy named Steve Kerr to stand up to you, that's got to, you know, earn your respect, you know, because he would he wouldn't back down. And you know how many guys twice the size of Steve Kerr were probably bowing to Jordan, you know, as his teammates throughout his career and even in college, I'm sure. It just you know it it's a testament to to Kerr's toughness. And you know his uh, respect for himself, and you know, and I, it, it, it just, it's funny because he says, you know, I'm somebody who bottles everything up and then just snaps. I'm the same way. Like I'll bottle things up and then just snap at somebody, and that's not the best way to approach it all the time because I'll just let somebody poke and prod me. But it just, it kind of hit me home, and I'm like, yeah, Steve, you know, good on you, man. You know, good on you for standing up to the big guy, but also good on Michael for immediately realizing his mistake and making it right. Yeah, indeed. Let's bounce around a little bit. Some other points in the episode. Let's get some other storylines here. One of my favorite parts of the two hours was the whole Bradford Smith saga, where he, where Michael Jordan basically tells the story from the 1993 season, where the Bradford Smith, some little-known guy on the Washington Bullets at the time, has the game of his life against MJ. He scores 37 in. They play next night at back-to-back. Michael Jordan says, you know what, I'm going to score as many as he scored for the game in the first half, and he puts up 36 in that game. So I also loved, he gave himself a moment, basically lying himself saying that, that a Bradford went up and said, nice game, Mike. I love that kind of stuff. I'm sure it sent Dan down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. Look, look up more about LeBradford Smith. Yeah. I mean that, that sequence and, and Ahmad Rashad being able to say like, they're pretty, I mean, it's, it's basically known that he, he made it up. Uh, <laughs> and poor LeBradford Smith, right? I mean, come on now. Think about, Think about how many scenarios Michael probably had to mentally create and the animosity, because that was his fuel, right? I mean, that was, he wanted everybody to be against him, um, and he needed that. It, it drove that competitive edge. And to see him go out and in, the, in a back-to-back and, and one guy have a good night, one night, Michael didn't play as well as one, you know, very, I mean, completely to the majority of even diehard sports fans, you know, unknown commodity has a, has a better game than Michael. Um, and Michael has to come out and completely bury him. And um, it's just a, it's, it's just an amazing anecdote. Um, and I love that they included it in the documentary because as much as we're talking about Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman as the people, I really appreciate the way that this documentary is going about the storylines with these other teams who you didn't realize were building up against this Chicago Bull machine at the time and the ways that they were doing so. And the way that the NBA nowadays, you you know, obviously we've had recent dynasty 
discussions about what Golden State has done in San Antonio and some other and the Lakers and obviously there's been recent success there but I I just have to say that it's so fascinating to me to to see how this documentary is is lighting up the competition the different teams and the different players that got at Jordan and brought that out of him it it was Gary Payton in episode 8 but it was as small as LeBrad Smith in episode 8 so you know, it, it, it crossed the whole league. It was Isaiah Thomas a few episodes ago. So it, it just goes to show you, it didn't matter how big or small the player was. Jordan was always looking for some sort of a fight, some sort of a, uh, a fuel. And uh, just, that's what I really love about the documentary is to see what was, what was driving Jordan to do all of this. And that's a big part of it. And they're doing a really good job of giving us that. Yeah, and throughout the uh, documentary, Jordan brings up fuel a lot because think about everything he was accomplishing. You know, he needed to keep himself motivated somehow. And even if it was something as little as LeBradford Smith scoring 37 points in a meaningless regular season game, um, he needed to he needed to keep things interesting and he needed to keep challenging himself in different ways. And I just you know, like you said, poor LeBradford Smith. Who knows what this guy would have done? You know, Jordan has been known to ruin people's careers, you know, make them feel so little of themselves. Think about, I don't know if, if they brought up the Muggsy Bogues story. I don't think they have during this documentary. But I think everybody knows the Muggsy Bogues story during the playoffs when he had the chance of the game-winning shot. Jordan leaves him wide open says, shoot the ball, you effing midget. And then Muggsy Bogues misses the shot, and, and he even says to this day he was never the same after that. So think about how the Bradford Smith felt. After all the trash, Jordan was probably talking to him while he dismantled his team on the second game of that back-to-back. Yes, there's a lot of crazy stuff there. It's like, I know they didn't mention the Muggsy Bogues, but we did get the B.J. Armstrong story of that series with the stuff. It was so funny watching B.J. Armstrong just have the game of his life, and then the rest of the team is like, oh, no, what'd you do? You woke Jordan up. Now we're doomed. I just just really think that what's, what's incredible is that you rarely see this. People that talk the talk and can walk the walk. And that was the thing with Jordan. And these guys knew it too. And yet they still, you know, took their shots. And I don't blame them because in the heat of a contest, I mean, I've done it. And when I've been playing sports, you know, if if I knew a team was better than me, maybe you thought that, okay, if you had a few good plays and you tried to get in their head, um, that that would work. But it didn't work on Jordan. He was always ready for it. And he would come back and crush you. And um, you, you just have to wonder what some of the conversations were like in, in the Hornets uh, locker room after that loss in game two. Uh, you know, what people were saying to Armstrong, like, what did you do to us? You know, like, I'm sure that that conversation was had many, many times by some of the best players in NBA history um, in being careful what they said and did to Jordan. And, 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 the, and the thing is, B.J. Armstrong was Jordan's teammate. Jordan knew B.J. Armstrong's moves, what he liked, where he liked to go, where he, where his spots were on the court. And he had one good game, and the Hornets were clearly the inferior team, as B.J. Armstrong said. So Jordan even said to himself, he's like, I don't know what B.J. was thinking. He should have known better than to poke the bear. And, yeah, there you go, B.J. You, you got smoked the rest of the series. I think what they yeah. said, the next game he scored like two points. Yep. 
Yeah, not good. Not a good showing from BJ, and BJ was a key part of like the storyline of Jordan coming back in '95. Because we get the point of the strike in baseball. He goes meets BJ Armstrong for breakfast. They have bagel. They have like donuts, and they're like, you know, like let's go to practice. And Jordan gets back in there. He decides to come back, and then we find out finally that like literally it was him who made, came up the idea to write the two word press release. I'm back. I think that's just perfect, Michael style. You know, like. I'm not going to waste all your time with the nonsense and the frivolity and all like the charades and all that. It's just, I'm here for business. I'm here to win. I'm back. Says it perfectly. Oh, it's yeah, so I mean, classic. So classic. And that's really all I have to say about it. It's just that's vintage Jordan's absolute classic line. Something that, you know, will go down in history as one of the more bad ass things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Jordan Jordan learned how to control the narrative. It took him a lot of years. The press would run with stories. He was fairly soft-spoken about a lot of topics. Like he, You know you see a lot, a lot of today's athletes that get frustrated if they're getting certain questions to the locker. Jordan dealt with a lot of tough questions. There were certain topics he didn't want to address at certain times, but he was always courteous to, for the most part when he was being interviewed. And it seemed like it kind of got all the way to this point where Jordan realized that everybody wanted to hear it or know where he was going, know what he was having for dinner, know what time he was showing up for practice, um, or, or what he was gonna, what shoes he was wearing that day. That he knew all he had to say was "I'm back," and that was gonna be it. And so it, it really is amazing. I don't think that we will probably ever have another athlete that. The entire sports world is waiting and it, just to see what they're going to do next. I think that that was such a special time in sports um, that, you know, basketball was in the forefront of every everybody's mind and Michael Jordan was the guy. So, uh, as Phil said, it's a classic MJ line. It is a classic MJ line. We also got to see a little bit behind the classic MJ movie, Space Jam, and we saw how he used basically his time while he was filming to basically get himself back into basketball shape. I think the coolest thing we learned about this is that they set up this court and that like every night he'd be like calling people to come in and he'd have all these NBA all-stars showing up playing search versus skins pickup games. This is after he films all day, he does workouts and he's playing pickup games. He's so competitive and he has call times the next day for like six, seven AM. Like that was like incredible seeing that stuff. Yeah, I wasn't aware of any of that, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And it's just a testament to his work ethic. You know, he, at the end of the day, you know, he was filming movies for sometimes 12 hours a day, but he always made time to ball, and he always made time to, to work on his game. And he also used that time to scout some of his competition, as he said. You know, he was he was sitting on the, on the sideline, not just, you know, twiddling his thumbs. He was watching players, seeing what their tendencies were, where they like to, you know, where they like to position themselves, their shooting motions, you know, how much time they took to, you know, make certain moves, and he was, you know, he was very calculated. You know, it, it was kind of interesting to me. The one guy that wasn't in the movie Space Jam, but that that you know probably could have been, um, that we saw there at the practice was Reggie Miller, and I was kind of. You know, it's not like Reggie was a rookie at the time that they were filming that. He'd been in the year in the league for at least five years at that point, maybe more. Um, so it was kind of interesting to me that even a guy like Reggie Miller, who was kind of 
just getting in, in the the next episode is going to lead right into what you know what we did with the Pacers. But it's kind of interesting to me that a guy like Reggie would go and practice with all of those guys. Obviously, he was trying to get himself better, but also he was showing his cards a little bit. And you know, we all now know what happens in the next. Well, I won't try to spoil too much <laughs> for people that aren't looking, but. Um, you know, it becomes a real battle between MJ and Reggie Miller. They they have a, a one of the series for the ages, and um, it's really interesting to me. I wonder. I was sitting there watching that clip of of Mil- Reggie Miller going to the basket, and MJ sitting there, as Phil said, kind of noting everybody. And I'm like, man, I wonder if MJ picked up on some stuff in Reggie's game that backfired. So we'll see. Yeah, we will see. And the last thing I want to touch on is something that Phil's brought up off air. I think it's interesting conversation. We get the 95-96 Bulls team, the one that won the 72 games. They end up winning it all, and, like, it's a fascinating debate for the ages. Like, which team was better? Like, the 95-96 Bulls, fifth, like, six, like 15, 16, 16, 17, every year it was the Warriors that won 73. I mean, the title thing, I think, to me, does push towards the Bulls. I think if you put those two teams on the same court, it would be a lot of fun. Uh, it seems I'll let Phil answer this one because he's he's you know obviously got a really good perspective on this having kind of been you know watching a lot more of the Golden State games. I'm personally as a Grizzlies fan. Every time I watch the Warriors, I just watched in envy. Um, but for the most part, I can I would just personally say that I have a hard time making the comparison just because they played such a different game. The game was so much more physical. Um, they didn't rely on the three-pointer as much as they, they the Warriors obviously did um, for all those years. So for me, I, I think honestly, I hate to say this, but I think the Warriors would have, would have crushed them um, just because of the range that all five players on the court for the Warriors could 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 do. I mean, I'm, I don't think that the Bulls would have been ready to guard Steph Curry what. 35 feet from the basket so I, I don't know maybe they would beat them up if they came into the lane um but just the range that clay thompson and steph curry had would would just i i think it would just be too much the bulls were winning games what 80 to 75 and the warriors are winning games 125 to 113 so I, I just don't think they'd be able to slow them down so what do you think all right so i did a little bit of research here because I had a lot of trouble with this myself. And obviously, the cop-out argument would be like, well, if they played back in the 90s when they wouldn't call the hard fouls, the Bulls would win. But if they played during this, this era of basketball, the Warriors would win. And I think that, that is sort of true. But I read that So this was, this was the first year of a four-year stretch where the NBA had moved up the three-point line. So what was going on, there was like a 10-year – 10 years straight of a decline in, in points per possession or just points per game for teams in general. So what they decided to do, David Stern was like, I want to move the three-point lineup. And the percentage, three-point percentage went from 33% as a, a league average to 37%, which is a pretty significant jump. So I think while you'd think that would make it a little easier for the Warriors, I think it actually helps the Bulls in a sense because they're getting three points for hitting mid-range shots, you know, that in today's NBA would count as two. And I think, you know, just the toughness of the Bulls is really hard to argue with, but the depth of Golden State could pose some problems in an elongated series. I think if the, the series got to seven games, 
that's when Golden State would thrive because they had a lot more depth than the Bulls did. The Bulls, I'm looking at the roster right now, and the Bulls only had three guys averaging over 10 points a game with Steve Kerr being the – or no, actually Luke Longley being the fourth, uh, the fourth best scorer at 9.1 points a game. Dennis Rodman was an absolute problem, by the way. He averaged six offensive rebounds a game. I thought that was just an incredible stat to look at. Like he averaged 15 rebounds and six offensive boards a game. And I was looking it up. Nobody's averaged more than 5.4 in the last 10 years, and that's Andre Drummond like four years ago. Yeah, it, it was a different game. It was a different game. Now the, the percentage of shots that go up are so high, and the ball, it, nobody crashes offensive boards because – they're scoring so at such an alarming rate that there's just not that. Uh, I wonder what the statistic could be, how many shots, how many available rebounds were there in today, while the, the Warriors were playing through their playoffs versus what the Bulls were facing. But also, I 100% agree with you, Bill, that the depth, I think about I think about the, the Clay Thompson trying to D up, you know, or, or even Kevin Durant, I feel like, would have, I feel like MJ would have tried to guard Durant, but they would have felt that either Rodman or Pippen would have been the better guy to guard Durant because of his length. I feel like yeah. Jordan would have Dur- tried. Sorry to cut you off, Dan. Durant wasn't on this team. The seven. Oh, we're talking about team. we're talking about the, the early they times. Early added times. Him. They added him the year after they won seventy three games. Like that's insane to me. And I think that that team with Durant their first year, you give them a few more years together, that team would have gave the Bulls a, more of a run than this team would have in hindsight. And, I mean, first off, I just want to shout out Festus Azili, you know, one of the better names in NBA history on this team. Shout out my boy Festus. Just want to say that. Um, whoever, between Draymond Green and Rodman, whoever didn't get suspended for the rest of the series, that team probably would have Because <laughs> that's I think that's an ultimate battle between that been an epic mad men, absolute mad men. And I would just yeah. love to see them go at it for seven years. So, so looking at this, let's then let's go through that roster, right? So, so Jordan is clearly going to try to to shut down Steph, right? And so, where does where does Pippen fall in on this? Let's figure out who's who's matching up with who in your mind of that starting five, because obviously we we it it would have come down to depth and matchups of who was going to be able to score if something was being taken away. I mean, honestly, dude, I think the Bulls defensively were so versatile between Rodman, Pippen, and, and Jordan. They could guard anybody, man. They would just be switching up, and it would be nuts. Like, that's why I think it would be such a – they would give the, the Warriors such a hard time because Rodman could guard one through five. Scottie Pippen could guard probably one through four. And Jordan could guard one through four. I know Jordan was, you know, a little bit older. He was 32 at this point. Rodman was 34. But Rodman, like I said, he averaged 15 rebounds a game. He was – you know, he only he was only averaging three fouls a game. Like that's absurd to think about, considering how much how involved he was on defense. Yeah, it definitely was a fascinating matchup. I would love to see this play out hypothetical. Maybe we get that as, as a simulation when we're looking for sports content. But we do have two more episodes left of this series to go. So I'll give each of you the floor here. What are you guys looking forward to in the finale of the Last Dance? Um, honestly, I didn't really look to see, aside from the, you know, Pacers, uh, Bulls series, what was going to be in it, because I like to keep myself uh, on edge and just surprised about what's going on. But I just really want to see how they tie everything together that, you know, because they keep bouncing back from 98 back, up back up to 98, back and forth, back and forth. I just want to see how they tie everything 
together to what, you know, how everything came to fruition in 98, really. Yeah. First off, just in the beginning of episode seven, when Jerry Krause is getting interviewed by that guy, by one of the media members. Craig, Craig Sager. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Craig Sager. And uh, I didn't realize it was Craig Sager. Um, but Jerry Krause looks, Jerry Krause first off looks like an evil villain from a really bad 80s, 90s cartoon. He's got those big bushy eyebrows and that, that like kind of sheepish look in his eyes. And uh, Craig Sager makes that comment about the backstabbing going on. And then after he gets the, Jerry Krause angrily walks off the stage right, one of the guys goes, way to go, Craig. <laughs> it was funny. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, talk about a guy who doesn't look great coming out of this other than Pippen is obviously Kraus. I mean, we it's for a guy who did so much to put together an amazing team for many, many years. I mean, what it was just handled so strange. I don't know what was more strange now in my mind. The way that the Bulls dynasty ended or the way that the Patriots dynasty has now kind of ended here um, with Brady leaving, right? Like, what what made more sense? Either kind of no conversation, no rumor, no nothing, and then just a, a very blunt departure or this very long, drawn out, he's, he's going to be done, Bill's gone, we're, bring, we're starting a new era before. It's not like everybody was you know, everybody on the team was retiring. It was just a very bizarre way to end things. But Kraus does not come out of this looking good, other than that one clip where it was pretty awesome for him just to walk off like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I just, I don't know. I think that it was grossly mishandled by Jerry Kraus. I think he had a Napoleon complex. He wanted all the credit. But, you know, at the end of the day, man, you're, he got the credit. He won what? Executive of the year twice? Yeah. Like, that's pretty impressive, man. Like, take your kudos and give Michael and Phil their moment because they're the ones that are putting in all the work, you know, in, in the forefront for you. And you get to be the behind-the-scenes guy that, you know, just gets to sit, in, you know, on top of the castle and just overlook all this happening in front of everybody's eyes. I wonder how much, how much it would have changed had Kraus just done the right thing, talked to ownership, give Pippen what he was due, kept the status quo, Talk to Michael, you know, maybe about, okay, what if you just went to spring training, but, you you know, you came back and you, you, you took a, you know, what if they just handled some of these things differently? Uh, maybe they, they tried to work something out with Horace Grant. And I, I'm just, I'm just interested if, if he were, to, I would love to hear if he regrets the way that these relationships that he had, because the success is there. If you look on paper, the crowd did. What Jordan did, Pippen, all of them, amazing. But the relationships behind the scenes were torn apart. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be just as curious one day to see the, the documentary about Tom Brady and Bill Belichick uh, and what really went on behind the scenes there. But I don't think we're getting that one. Yeah, I don't either, Dan. What are you looking forward to next week in the finale of Last Dance? Um, for me, yeah, it was it's, uh, like the the first real team that I feel like you know from an age standpoint that I kind of was that first season of of really watching basketball and understanding it, going out in the driveway, mimicking shots, really going through, um, and and idolizing a particular shooter was Reggie Miller. So to see him creep into the last episode, last part of episode eight 
and that's what we're going to get in episode nine. I'm really excited about that. I'm also curious if they're going to touch on Jordan's decision to then what happened with the Wizards and whether we're, if they're going to leave it alone with this was the last dance, we're telling the story up until this particular point, or whether they're going to follow Jordan and the legacy that he created. Is it going to turn into the Michael Jordan odyssey, or is it just going to stay the last dance? So they've been jumping around in the timeline, so I wonder if they're going to now fast forward, fast forward. I, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm kind of most looking forward to in the last two episodes. Yeah, the thing that I'm looking for is there's two things that are both directly tied to the Jazz. They're going to deal with both those series next week, the 97 and 98 finals. This is the flu game. I'm dying to get his full take on the flu game. I don't think we ever heard that from him. And I also want to mm-hmm. hear the psychology of the last shot. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. All right, I think there we have. We've got over an hour on the last dance. And there's so much meat on the bone here. I think we can go for another two hours if we wanted to, but we'll wrap it up here. Bill, I know you're not hanging around for the Survivor talk, so if you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media and let them know some of the stuff you're up to, what do you want? What do you want to promote? Well, uh, you know, I um, I haven't been there hasn't been much content to be posted on social media lately, but uh, my Instagram handle is Siltograph, T H I L T O G R A T H S. So if you ever want to see me gallivanting around and making a fool out of myself, you can uh, check me out there. And uh, I just cannot wait to get some semblance of organized sports on the television. I watched UFC 249 on uh, Saturday, and that was fantastic. Some really quality fights. And uh, seeing Tony Ferguson get uh, pummeled to a bit by uh, Gacy was quite the spectacle. So just wanted to throw that in there because I thought that was just really awesome stuff. It happened right here in my backyard, right down the street (laughs) from there. It did, yeah, it did. Yeah. <laughs> I star veteran Memorial Arena. Yeah. So, yes. It's cool. Yeah, so Phil, thanks for all thanks for all the time hanging out this day. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh yeah, I can't wait till this is all over. Hope everybody's staying safe. And uh, you know, when this is all over we will get to hang out and speak in person. Yeah, indeed. And Dan's gonna stick around for me. We're gonna do the survivor finale right after this. All right, back to wrap up the podcast this week, talking some pop culture. Dan DiMartini still on the line with us. We just watched the Survivor Winners at War finale. We came on right before the merge. Dan, back after the finale. I got to say, this was a lot of fun to wrap the season up. Uh, I mean, arguably the best finish I've ever watched in terms of people that deserve to make it to the end because they are amazing, incredible players did so. And it made it really fun to watch and the most deserving winner won in my opinion indeed before we go any further i'm going to throw the good old-fashioned spoiler warning up all right so if you have not watched the season finale of survivor winners at war and you don't care about being spoiled stay on otherwise you if you want to watch the episode first come back it's totally fine but I have to say now, I think at this point, Tony's spot is one of the greatest of all time is cemented after that performance. And I and I 100% agree. I'm going to start by saying, if you are listening to the end of this podcast right now and you have access to Hulu or any other CBS Plus streaming service, whatever it is, 
and you haven't watched this season and you're like kind of at the end of Netflix or where you, you're just searching for something to watch, sit down and watch these episodes. This is awesome TV. And it's not the game has changed, as we've talked about on the pod so much. It's not really about like them being hungry or dealing with the elements. These are people like social situations that these people and, and athletic talent and skill to win these challenges the best I've ever seen. And to your point, Tony wins and, you know, we can talk however you want about it. He is in my mind, just so relentless. Like that's the only term I can use for him. He finds a million ways. He knows when to be sweet and sensitive when he can, he knows how to play stupid. He knows when he, he started to build confidence in his, um, his, not only his, he's always had confidence in his social game and his ability and to go out and find idols. Like we always knew Tony was the idol guy, but to really take command in challenges where you have to focus and balance and throw things. And he was always coming from behind and uh, it, it was really sheer determination from Tony to win this season. Uh, and it was, a, it was a lot of fun to watch. It was a lot of fun to watch. And I have to say, just as a fan, I feel like there might not, I mean, other than maybe Colby and Jerry over their three season run, there may not be a better evolution of relationship than the one between Tony and Sarah and cops RS over this course of their three seasons. The first season, I mean, Tony votes her out at the merge, the whole tribe's clapping his alliance. They voted her out and they blindsided her second time around. She outlasts him because he gets voted out the second episode. And then, this game there is working together from the jump at this point where they had end up facing off in the fire making challenge of final four, see who gets that last seat in the final tribal council. And he wins and he breaks down crying as she's leaving and she's like, Oh, it's okay. You have one more day, go win it. I think the evolution of their relationship, man, has been like something very interesting to watch. You, you can't help. I know there are people out there who don't like Tony that think he's kind of a, they're a, you know, a, a bit of a slime ball and a, and a ruthless, pirate of sorts but um you know i i see the other side of tony which is that he's incredibly resourceful and his relationship with sarah was something that i the whole season i was just kind of like any time that either one of them was going to make a move uh against one another or you know even had a talking head where they're just talking to the camera about making a move for themselves i i'm kind of almost sitting there like no stay together stay together like there was always that, um, you know, Sarah got very close with, with Sophie this season. Um, and, you know, uh, and Tony was doing his thing and fighting for his own life for a long time. But to see them come back together and to uh, really have one of the most genuine moments on Survivor history, that embrace after that fire. And they, they were, I don't know if it was just editing or whatnot, but when Sarah's fire went up first, and that rope started to burn. I was just like, screw. I was like standing with my hands on my head, going, "No, no, come on, Tony, get you know." Because his fire was pretty low, but to see that slow and steady won the race again for Tony, he comes back in a challenge and just stays the course and stays cool. It says something about his ability as that cop, as just a cop, or just a, just an officer. Um, you know, a a uh, a civil servant, um, but also the, just the the sheer fact that he's he's got those skills to remain calm. Like uh, my hands would be, I don't know about you, Mike, but like if I was doing a fire challenge that was going to give me a chance to make like 
serious money. Like my hands would be trembling. I'd be panicking. I'd be, the sticks wouldn't be standing up. I'd be looking over at Sarah. I mean, he stayed so calm and he built up that teepee and he did it the right way. And that was very much a, an example of how he played this game, which was he let everything else kind of happen and he continued to find a way to come back from it and face adversity and come out on top. So I, um, I, I think that that was a really interesting dynamic that Tony, after this whole season, we've watched him. His name came up so many times and to never actually have a vote against him. And then to face his biggest adversary yet, which I don't know if you want to get into, but just Natalie's ability to come back from the edge of extinction and shake up the entire final six um, and break down that alliance was probably the most incredible watch I've had as well. So credit to her, but but really, I loved the dynamic between Tony and Sarah. And, uh, you know, Natalie almost punched a, a genuine hole in that. And it was cool to see them, even though Natalie turned them against each other at the end, that they stayed true to each, to each other and uh, the best person came out on top. Yeah, I think it's incredible about those two is the fact, like, I think the thing that people don't talk about enough with Survivor is the social game. Everybody talks about, oh, like, Gotta have the blind sides, gotta win the challenges, but like your ability to make relationships out there is the difference between winning and losing. And despite the fact that those two were clearly a power duo and were basically running the game the whole time, like nobody ever wanted to vote with them. Everybody felt like they were going to the end with Tony and Sarah, which is incredible credit to their social games. And Tony, who played his incredibly chaotic win the first time, was a lunatic the second time out when he got voted out. In fact, nobody wrote his name down the entire time. It was absolutely stunning. It's amazing. A game full of all of these high-profile players. I don't know whether people just thought that Tony wasn't as smart as he actually is, or whether they just were like it's you know the 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 cool survivor thing to do is to lead somebody in the game because they're a bigger target than you, and Tony just kept taking advantage of that. I think Ben looked at it as, oh, somebody else will start the charge to vote out Tony. Uh, to Tony. I think Sarah, a little bit on the inside, was always comfortable with having Tony be her partner because he was going to go out before her, and that would tell her when her alliance was, was on the bottom. Um, I think Denise rode a little bit behind. Everybody always thought that somebody else was going to take out Tony, and all the players that would have taken out Tony were voted out way too early in the game. And so, you know, you look at the guys like Rob, who would have saw what Tony was doing and called him out on it. You look at Tyson, you look at um, Jeremy to a degree. Jeremy played a lot of this game a lot more passive and on the bottom because he was so true to his friendships. I think that hurt Jeremy's games the, the most. He just, he will refuse to work with people that he doesn't have a personal relationship with. And so I thought that that was a little bizarre, but once again, Mike, I, I just to come full circle. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't speak higher to just the, um, the ability, uh, that or just the good on survivor for, even though I think they put way too much into this year, into this season with so many fire tokens and separate challenges. And yes, there were a lot of rah-rah moments, but they got a, finish worthy of survivor fans like uh, 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 it was this was a fan friendly finale if i could do, give you a triple f 
Yeah, I agree. With, I think that's a definitely a fan friendly finale. And I, one more time before we move on from him, I think like honestly, in his first time around, the lazy comparison was to make was to him with Russell Hands, who like obviously they both found the idols, they're both big schemers and all that. But the big difference between these two wins, very eliminated this season, is that Russell was a dick, and Russell could not get anybody to like him. Tony was lovable; everybody loved him. We saw the scene with him like climbing the ladder early in the season; he was making everybody laugh. We saw the scene with the shark. We see him running around with glee when he thinks he has an advantage. It's being played against him. And, like, he's just more fun to be around than Russell. That's, like, a big difference of why he's won twice and Russell has been a disaster. 100%. And that's what it is. And and I, I think that there is a fine, fine line out on the island between a bully and a strong player. And Tony finally found that line between making himself um he was always leading the charge and he was playing multiple angles but he because he hustled so much and he was so lovable people didn't find him annoying or or didn't see they they just said oh tony scrambling tony scrambling but he talked to everybody and by talking to everybody he didn't allow these other friendships to form so much without his knowledge. And how could we do this final podcast without talking about the spy nest? How much did you love that? I was dying when I saw, you know, the final, final progression and him getting to tell the jury about his spy nest. It was amazing. Yes, the spy nest, we'll go down in survivor lore. It's one of the best things of all time. Loving seeing him stand, sitting up in that tree, just trying to eavesdrop in conversation about the well was fantastic. I love that. And the and the camera is just panning to him, and here he is. I mean, he's he doesn't have good his feet are not secure on that on that tree. And you've got Sarah and um Natalie having a conversation, you know, ten feet below him as he's hugging you know, the the trunk of this tree hiding so that Sarah knows that he's up there, but Natalie doesn't. And he's getting information that Natalie has a hidden immunity idol. So he doesn't even now need to question Sarah because he saw it himself and he heard everything that Natalie was planning to do. It didn't end up being a critical component in, in how the end was going to be played there. It was ultimately Sarah's decision. Tony... You know, Tony was very, very fortunate to win immunity challenges when he needed to and that people continued to question Michelle's loyalty and obviously were trying to get Natalie out, um, but Natalie wouldn't let them, rather than just say, oh, okay, Tony doesn't have immunity around his necklace. Who cares about Natalie's idol? Let's all quickly get Tony out because that's the best chance to win. Like, had Ben, Sarah, and Michelle... And Denise quickly looked to say, okay, we need we need to listen to Natalie and really do whatever we can to, to get Tony out now. That would have really changed the finish. But uh, Tony's relationship survived and, uh, and and ultimately gave him the win. Yeah, then we have to go to the edge from it. The edge extension plays out like sort of as expected because Natalie has basically been hoarding the fire tokens all year. She's been hustling, working hard to get them. Ends up buying three advantages for the return challenge and to me, I'm not a big fan of the buying the advantages for the challenge because, like, it was just so stacked the deck for Natalie to win. Because, like, even when she scuffled bad in the game, she had such a large margin for errors to like, overcome it and win. Whereas, like, if she had started from the top and struggled with the first part of that rope thing, like, 
I don't think it's as fun to me. Like when like some, it's like imagine we were running a race and like I was uh, like a, running a fifty yard dash and I was thirty yards ahead of you. If I even if I like tripped on my own shoes on the way down, I still have a better shot to be because I have the advantage. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought that the way that Edge of Extinction was handled was completely insane because so Natalie's voted out first and she had the most opportunities to affect the game from being outside the game than anybody else. So she had the most time out there to acquire tokens. So she had the most time. So, so I'm just confused as to what the, the logic there is, right? So you're saying that whoever's voted out first is going to have the best chance to come back in, even though they didn't have to work hard on the island while they were part of the game, they're just going to be able to skip all of that crap and come back at the final six. And also, by the way, they're coming back in with advantages, not only in the challenge, but also then to have an idol. Uh, and and I, I was just kind of perplexed by, you would have thought that if you were going to do this a fair way, the first person voted out to send to Edge of Extinction to the last person to arrive to Edge of Extinction, there would have been a cap. So a number of tokens that you could get to that would make it so that, okay, you could you get one advantage in the final challenge because you earned X amount. Rob, it would have been better had guys like Wendell, Yule, Rob, Tyson who worked their butt, and Ethan, to a degree, who really worked their butt off on Edge of Extinction, were capped at the same number as Natalie. But she really did a ton of work with everything, her ability to hustle over there, and nothing against her hard work. She said it in the finale, hard work pays off. But I just didn't think that it was fair that the amount of time she had out there worked to her advantage in such a big way in that final it yeah. would have been cooler, and I'm curious what you think, would have been cooler had everybody was equal in that final challenge to get back in the game, but then whatever she had acquired out there, she could use once she won it straight up. I, I, I didn't think that she deserved to have three advantages in the final challenge. That's insane. It was insane. Yeah. No one else had a chance. Yeah, no one really did. Like, my... My issue is the fire tokens is a good idea, but it's broken, right? They have to fix it so that, like, poor Nick, for example. Like, Nick is sitting there holding six fire tokens, and he's like, I'm winning all game to use them. Nobody gives anything good to use them on. And then he gets this one advantage, doesn't even end up helping him, finds up getting him voted out of the game. When he gets to the edge, he has no time to get new fire tokens, so he didn't even have a chance to buy an advantage he wanted one. Yeah, it, it just it didn't work. It didn't work. I'm sorry. The game, they're, they are lucky. The producers of CBS are lucky that it turned out to be a genuine, um, really engaging final four, um, regardless, because the immunity challenge is still the ability to win those difficult challenges at the end of the game to get yourself to the final outweighed the ridiculousness of the fire tokens in my mind. Yeah, let's touch on Natalie for a little bit because Natalie, as he comes back in the game, like she comes back in at final six. She has the idol she bought at Extension, uses it to basically end up having a zero-vote tribal count of Final Six, ends up getting Denise voted out. Final Five, she finds an idol, then is able to play for herself. Final Four, she wins the challenge and then opts not to go into the fire, pull with Chris Underwood, and they say, you know what, I, 
I'm going to take Tony out. I'm going to make Sarah do it for me. So it wouldn't bother me. I think, I don't know if you feel the same way. Like if she had gotten to the end, basically never having survived a vote when she didn't have immunity in the entire game, she got voted out day two. And then the last three trials she went to, she was immune and won the game. That would have bothered the hell out of me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and nothing against her because she's tough and she's savvy and she's genuine. But yeah, I mean, that's, it, it would have taken all of the outwit portion of the game out of it. And we all know survivors outwit, outplay, outlast. And she didn't outlast. Um, I mean, I guess in some sense she did by being able to come back. But she definitely didn't outwit, but she did outplay um, uh, from just this, this, the athletic side. She's a, a wonderful athlete. And, yeah. and her hand-eye coordination in that final immunity challenge with the when they had to basically, for those that haven't seen it, they, they basically had to put, you know, these, um, you know, small, uh, they almost look like ping-pong balls into a track. And they had to keep five or six of them at a time all going. And as they, they would switch sides, left to right side, and as the balls were going through the track, you had to quickly grab them from the end of the track and put them back in before they hit the ground. And they were moving really fast. Like, talk about, this was like a drill that, like, a professional baseball player, like a, like a catcher would work on um, to have quick hands. And she was incredible, some of the saves that she made. So, long story short, as she she outplayed, but I, I'm 100% with you that I, I would have been really, really mad had she won the game that way. But when Tony made the final, your gut just told you, man, I, I, if Tony doesn't get this win, I, I don't know if I could watch again. Because then people, just their personal relationships were going to be the reason that Natalie won. Which brings me to my next point. I don't know if you want to skip this far ahead, but I'd love to talk about the jury vote real quick. That's a logical place to go because, I mean, this is, no offense to Natalie. Natalie did what she was supposed to do in the structure of the game she had. This is more of a don't hate the player, hate the game kind of deal. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the only person in that final six that I was a little upset with was um, Denise. I thought that with the game that she played and how aggressive she went the whole time, I was a little upset that she didn't realize that when Natalie came back in and she had the idol and things were starting to turn to a degree on her, she didn't scramble enough to figure it out um, that all those idols were going to be played and that she was on the chopping block. Um, and that was hard. It, it was it was a difficult scenario to see that three people were going to play idols, uh, but she played a better game than she got for a finish, yeah. in my opinion. But anyway, to the jury vote, I look. Tony wins twelve four uh, over Natalie, and Michelle gets zero votes. I was a little upset. I thought Michelle deserved a couple votes. I don't know from where. My big grief is with Ethan and Parvati. I knew that Jeremy was never going to vote for anybody but Natalie because they are big good friends. Tyson never liked Tony. I feel like they are two hot personalities, and and I don't think that Michelle and Tyson ever formed any sort of relationship. 
So it doesn't shock me that Tyson voted for Natalie, especially since Natalie whooped him in a few spots out on Edge of Extinction. So that does not surprise me. I am actually genuinely upset with Ethan and Parvati because Parvati seems like she voted for Natalie because they spent a lot of time together on Edge and she just liked her. Like, come on, Parvati. You know that Tony played a better game. And maybe maybe Parvati voted for Natalie because she figured that Tony was going to win anyway. Like, I'm sure the jury was talking to themselves either, or amongst themselves and said, like, oh, yeah, there's no way that Tony's losing this game. So maybe she did it just, be, just because. But then Ethan as well. Like, come on, you two. I don't care what you saw out on Edge. You have to look at how Tony outlasted all of you amazing players. The fact that they didn't vote for him is really just embarrassing in my mind. Yeah, the problem, again, is not on them. It's on the format of the show. Because you look at the way the show ended up playing out. Those who never spent a day in the game with Tony, they never actually got to talk to Tony, interact with Tony. Like, they spent a long time on edge with Natalie. And that's a problem with the edge format is that, you know, like, you can sit there, you can vote out on day three, and you can basically bond with the jury for the whole game. And then if you get back in and come a move to get to the end, you have some votes built in for you, which Tony's not the opportunity to do. But, but they were also at every tribal council, Mike, and they were they saw the streak of four wins that, of immunity challenges that Tony won that were critical for him to survive. And they saw all the maneuvering that he's done and, and the different, the idol, remember that one, um, I guess maybe there were eight eight people left and they were all whispering in each other's ears, and Tony is leading the charge to try to whisper to Jeremy, to whisper to Ben, what are we going to do? Who are we going to vote for? Are we voting for Kim? It was to try to get Kim out, and it ultimately worked. But, like, he was a, a master manipulator, but not in a conniving way, in a very genuine, like, cause chaos and have everybody question their decisions. And they saw the whole thing. I remember multiple times the camera panning over to Ethan and Parvati during those things just going, wow, Tony is incredible. Like, they know that this guy played the best game and and turned it, constantly turned the game back in his favor when it was getting away from him. And I thought that two originals, original, original players, would look at the long scheme that Tony had to go about this season and still vote for him. So I thought Natalie only deserved two votes. I thought that two other votes, I thought that Nick would vote for um, Michelle, and I thought Wendell should have voted for Michelle because she, I know they had a, a relationship in the past, but she outplayed him, and I, I thought that maybe he would be like, all right, I respect her, but, you know, I don't know what's going on there. So, those are the those are the other votes that I thought. I, I just when I when I saw the final final when all the jury holds up their their votes to the camera, I literally was just my jaw dropped when I saw that it was Harvey and Ethan who voted the extra two. So I don't know how you felt. Yeah, I felt bad. Michelle got no votes because like I did not think she should have beaten Tony. Tony was I'd play the game, but Michelle played the entire thirty nine days. She played from the bottom a lot, and someone who came in and basically said like. I felt like I wasn't getting respected after my first win. I doubted that I should have won because all this public outroar about how Aubrey should have won, go wrong, not her. But, like, she played a fantastic game. She won challenges she needed to. She made good relationships. Everybody was giving her yeah. the, their fire tokens when they left the game. Like, she was very good at the social game. And 
Now she can say she's the only player who's played multiple times to never be voted out and get to the end. So, like, that was, like, we've had people like Jenna Maraska leave early in All-Stars. We had Scooping get medevaced in one season. But, like, she has gone through two entire games not being voted out, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, and it's and it's a testament to she, when the season started, you really didn't even put her in the upper half of the threat on the island. People who could win challenges, find idols, get people on their side she was the definition of a floater in my mind uh, in, in a season full of winners she was the floater um i thought sophie was way more was going to be the floater of the season um and you know nick to a degree as well but michelle really kind of just went with that whatever the wind took her whatever direction it took her she went and but credit to her because that is a really good strategy the problem is she was going – I'm curious, and I, I'd love to know what you think. Had Tony lost to Sarah, what are the votes? Natalie wins, but what are the votes? I don't think Natalie wins. I think Sarah actually wins. I think Sarah would have had to make an incredible speech about how she was just as important to, the, to getting to the end and controlling the alliance as Tony was because she kept saying, I'm the reason you're still here. I'm the reason you're still here. Well, not everybody out that we watched it. We know that, that Sarah was involved in, in turning the, the heat off of Tony, but everybody else only just saw Tony as the golden boy. They, they didn't know what Sarah was up to. I think that what you said earlier, Mike really matters. I think the people that were out on edge with Natalie would have leaned towards Natalie over Sarah. I, I don't know. I I would think that it was. I think it could have been like it was twelve four for Tony. Um, maybe seven six three something like that. Seven I, six three for Natalie. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think Sarah would have scrapped it out because Sarah's thing I said before is all her social game, and we saw she had bonds with Kim, she had bonds with Tony, she had bonds with Ben, she had a bond with Denise, she had a bond with Michelle, she had a bond with like Sophie. She was bonds with like a lot of mm -hmm. people, and like that, she had a bond with Tyson early in the game. That's like a lot of stuff you can weigh in there and say, you know, maybe Sarah can pull those emotional bonds, and she can demonstrate her strategy, and she would be able. I think she would have gotten close. She would have been closer, but I think she would have snuck it out. If I'm one of those final people. And I'm looking at the scenario. How do I not go up there and say, Sarah, tell us, tell us how you did anything in this game that didn't involve Tony? Um, anything of note, anything of meaning. And she would have really been fighting to prove that it was that it, there was a lot more of her um, than him, uh, because he Tony took the risk. It was always Tony is doing this. Sarah would go out and find out what the word on the street was, but that doesn't get you votes at the end of the game. Sarah, just as, as a person who I, I love her as just, a, just seeing how genuine she is with her family and what she stands for. But I never really truly, I, I never looked at her and said, she's controlling this game. I said that about Tony for a lot of it. I said that when Michelle started winning immunity challenges, all of a sudden that she's got a bit of a sway. And when Natalie came back, holy crap, she was controlling the game. I don't know how many times this season I said, 
Sarah is running the show now, you know? And unfortunately, people like Rob, they vote for, for people that, that take chances and succeed. So, I don't know. Uh, be, I think that it would be more interesting than what, than what you think. So. Yeah, well, that's an interesting discussion. And I want to talk about the actual, like, like effect on the like the whole sh- like whole show because of the COVID thing because obviously they did not do a reunion I think they tried to and saw the fact they had the 20 like players all have the zoom setups there but I feel like yes I think the extra time of the episode helped I feel like they were going to try and do something and then they sort of realized that you know what like a 20 person zoom call is too unwieldy for Jeff to do so let's just like have him just read the votes of the final three and just pad out the episode I think worked out short term but it's unfortunate side effect of the whole thing yeah, yeah, and and to be perfectly honest, I loved it because I didn't feel like there was um, sometimes when they do, go do the live audience stuff and they're going into the audience, talking to family members and blah blah. blah. I I, I kind of liked that they cut right to the chase. Um, I am curious, you know, maybe I missed it. I I, I was trying to at, towards the end there. I was just kind of writing down notes and whatnot, but. They haven't made any mention now of what they're going to kind of go, where they're going to go from here, correct? Well, the only thing they said about 41, which is the next season of the can, is that Jeff basically said that they're working on it, they have ideas, and they're committed to airing in the fall, which I think was a big, bold step for them. I think most of us, you and I included, assumed they were going to be out until at least the spring season because they were going to have to wait a while to film. And, and, you know, one of my life dreams is still to make it on this show. So as long as they are going to continue to push it in the right direction and they're going to reevaluate the fire token scenario, I'm going to keep submitting my name to CBS. So that's what this all really comes down to is eventually so that all of the podcast listeners that we've got right now realize that I am going to make an appearance on Survivor 47, season four. That's what my goal is, to make it on to Survivor season 47. Dan... 30, what will I be by then? Jeez. Probably like 34, 34, 35. Uh, yeah, 34, 35. Uh, you could say sports marketing professional is what would be my, my tagline. Yeah. Um, so that's what the goal is, Mike, because yeah. why else are we watching this if unless we want to actually go out there and do it ourselves? I, I, I know you're watching it for the sake of the commentary, but I'm watching it to figure out what am I going to do? Who am I going to be like if I ever make it onto the show? So. Yeah, I, I, am I going to be Tony? Am I going to be Sarah? Or am I going to play it like Sandra and uh, go out like a like a boss? I don't know. Um, I just I, I I can't figure out what I'm going to be. I got to start learning how to make fire though. Yeah, I feel like your comparison. I think I said this to you before. I feel like your best player comparison to me is Penner. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah. To a degree. Hopefully, I'm a little bit more athletic. Uh, but yeah, no, the the Penner side of things. I I would love to be a combination of Penner and who would who would be a good uh, a good second comparison. I need a, some sort of like an Ozzy and a Penner combined. That's my goal. <laughs> I want to be able to go out with snorkeling gear and provide food to the tribe. That's but I also want to be able to. Um, talk to people and get to know them and get them to think that I'm more than just their, I'm, I'm their friend uh, and they should trust me. So that's, so, that's what I'm going for. So a slightly less threatening Malcolm basically. Yeah. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm Love tr- it. 
I'm curious what they're going to do for season 41 because I've seen this idea flew around the internet of late. Like, they may not be able to get out to Fiji because they've been filming all these seasons because of the travel restrictions because of COVID. You wonder, maybe this is something where, you know, they find a spot in the U.S. to film a season just to, you know, make sure they get on the air and then go back to Fiji for when they have more, like, freedom traveling to do it. But we could see something, like, maybe yeah, why? U.S.-based. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm 100% with you. Why not take a look at, like, why can't you play Survivor, like, in a remote area of Montana or Wyoming? You know, you're still alone, um, but, you know, it it doesn't matter the environment, really. Um, You can still play this game uh, regardless. I know you're probably thinking, like, maybe just, like, a private island somewhere off the U.S., but um, we're still part of the U.S., but... Uh, I don't think anybody cares anymore. I, I haven't cared for a long time what the location was. I only cared about what they were doing to the game itself. You could put the, you know, all these these castaways in, in uh, you know, just a, a on a big house somewhere, just like Big Brother, and and still play it like that, and I wouldn't care. So, um, it it to me, it's all just about what they're going to do to keep evolving the game fixing the fire token situation, maybe take a break from Edge of Extinction for a little bit and just get back a little bit to the core of the game. Um, uh, it, it would be interesting to me if when a person is voted out, they have a challenge where they are timed. Like, for uh, just for example, so say we, they do another season and you're voted out immediately. You, you Your torch is set out you go over to this station and as fast as you can make fire, however fast you do that, your time is recorded and we don't see you. We don't see you. Your time's recorded and you're, you're, you're off. You're, you're, if you don't make the jury, whatever it is, whoever is voted out in the fastest time that's recorded, that person can impact the game later on. I'm not even saying they come back into the game but they can have some sort of an effect on the game later on. And I, I just always thought, like, when somebody's voted out, like, why not throw a big curveball by having them do something that nobody knows about um, until they are voted off and, uh, and that comes back. So, I don't know. Something like that would be interesting for the next season. Yeah, I think so, too. Last thing I want to touch on is, like, how big is Jeff Probst's garage able to build himself a mini Survivor set in there? Good Lord. Oh my God. It, it makes you, you know, it makes you really think he's, he's obviously made a, an amazing career out of this. I mean, who would have thought that here we are 40 seasons later, um, with some, some amazing reality television, really, uh, some, some of the more fond memories I have really. Uh, and a lot of the ways that I approach board games, um, team sports, uh, are, are having spent so many hours watching this show, I, I feel like I've incorporated certain things. So, but good on Jeff Ropes for for creating that mini set. It looked really cool, and it felt like a very fulfilling finale. So, and I think that him doing what he did kind of remotely um, worked. I, I, I was I was bought in. Yeah, I, I like that. I wish we had a little more time to talk to Tony after he won, but. I don't think I sort of thought of. Yeah, just... the family, the family doing their thing did definitely take a toll on me as well. Yeah, it did, and I also want. I'm also curious because obviously, like, 
we've seen so many of these players who are out there say they're done. Like Rob said, I'm done. Sanders said, I'm retired. A lot of these players said they're done. Like how many people do you think conceivably could see again in the future? You think this is like kaput for most of them? I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit there. What was that? I was asking more like, like how many of these people do you think actually will play again at some point in the future? You think this is it for like the vast majority of them? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I think that we could see um, a couple seasons. Um, you know, like they did Survivor All Stars. Yeah. I could I could see maybe um, one season where they they drop. You know, like Michelle gets another shot. Um, I could see a season where maybe they have um, you know another you know pros versus Joes scenario. I I, I could definitely see that. I really here are the people that I want to see again. I think Tony should should ride off into the sunset because as much as I love watching him on TV, you're not going to get better than winning twice and the, the two million dollar prize. Like he should he shouldn't even bother um, unless he comes back like a mentor like Rob and Sandra have. I don't know. Um, that would be cool. I would love to see Sarah come back and try to play more aggressive. I'd love to – I think I'm done with Tyson. Um, I think I think I'm done with Rob and Amber. Uh, I would love to see Natalie be a mentor. Um, I think I'm done with Jeremy. Uh, Adam, all about it. Denise, all about it. Uh, I think I'm done with Kim. I think I'm done with Danielle. Um, you know, Sophie, yes. Um, who else? Nick, yes. Ben. Ben was a little recklessly emotional for me, so I don't know. I, I'm kind of on the fence on him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, really just looking at the cast, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 on, uh, of those, that group who I would want to see again. And But I do think several of them will because they make for great TV. Ethan and Parvati are probably done. Um, but... You know, I think Yule could could be useful to come back and get another shot because he basically, of all the people on this season, he probably played the most like a rookie in that he shot himself in the foot. So I think that Yule deserves redemption. Yeah, I think the thing I'm looking for with some of those people, I don't think we'll see any of them again really until, like, I think when they hit 25 years or 50, I think they're going to have some sort of, like, legends deal. I can see some of these people back for that. Yeah, but I think there's going to be some time now. Yeah. But I bet they had, it looked like they had a blast out there. Other than that final tribal where they were all shivering cold, um, it looked like they, they all had a really nice time and it had a, a good camaraderie. And I think a lot of them will uh, be open to playing against other players that they respect. I don't I don't see I don't see them ever doing another season with a couple of them where they're going to play against brand new players. Uh, I think they like the fact that they're playing poker against people that they know. So, uh, you know, the best poker player in the world, you know, they, they know each other's game and it makes it really entertaining uh, to see who comes out on top. When you have to play against a complete random, uh, it kind of ruins the overall product. So I think CBS will be really smart um, as to what they how they use these champions again. Yeah, I agree. Dan, thanks for spending all this time today, man. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow on social media and keep up with some of the stuff you're up to? 
sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm just through this COVID scenario, relaunching the out of town fan podcast. I took a break from it for a long time because I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go with it. Um, so on Twitter, it's out of town fan pod. Um, obviously I'm still going to talk a little bit of Colts, but there's a lot of, um, other things that I kind of want to address through it as well. Just once again, the experience of trying to follow your teams and, uh, when they are not nearby. So, uh, anyway, check that out and, uh, it'll be on SoundCloud probably in the next month here. Um, and you know, we are, as you all know, I'm, I'm heavily involved in golf. So I know I've been on the podcast quite a bit, but if, you know, you need, if you want to talk some golf, uh, towards the end of the summer into the fall around the masters and everything else, the FedEx cup playoffs, uh, happy to do so. So it's good to get some live sports other than UFC coming back in the next two weeks. Yeah. It's be fun. Dan, thanks again. I really appreciate it. No problem. Mike. See ya. All right. And that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Melissa Isaacson, for calling in to talk about her time covering Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls in the early 90s. I want to thank Nick Frietta for taking a dive into the NFL schedule and beat, finding some interesting stuff to discuss there. I also want to thank Dan DiMartini, Phil Lombardo for their time talking Last Dance, and Dan's case, also diving into the Survivor finale. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my early look at the Jets and Giants schedules and all predictions game by game of how they're going to do, Check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. Simply search for Just and the Suffering there on any of the audio platforms on YouTube. It's Mike Phillips on YouTube. I put up the individual segments on YouTube, so if you just want to hear Melissa Eisen's interview, you can check that out there. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. Normally, I'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331, that's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331, and tweet me at the hashtag, I'm back, to me at the end of this week's show. Iconic press release from Michael Jordan. Again, hashtag, I'm back. Next week, we're going to wrap up The Last Dance. I actually have an interview with Sam Smith coming up. That's going to be fun. And a double dose of John Stanko. Re- Last Dance recap, movie cue, and more. I hope you a better week than Sonics fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.